0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Gary Ridgeway, the Green River Killer. Real piece of shit. Misogynistic misfit preyed on the weakest members of society. Young female street prostitutes runaways. Women already marginalized to the lowest rung of society. Mere sexual objects to be used as the men who bought their bodies soft fit. And no one used them more than Gary. He took everything from them. Took their futures. Took their hopes and dreams. You know, the ones a short lifetime of desperate choices hadn't already removed. The Youthful light in one's eyes that most of us are fortunate enough to have, or at least experienced for a while when we were in our teens or twenties, that feeling that anything was possible. Or that if things, you know, weren't where they uh, you wanted them to be, there was still time to change course. Well, he took that. He ended the hope that was there, you know, that there was still time to get things right. He took what little was left of their light and he fucking snuffed it out. He watched it go out. And then after taking that last bit of these women's lives, he refused to even allow them dignity and death. He returned to the body dump sites, desecrated their bodies time and time again as he saw fit. He let their families wonder what had happened to their daughters year after year. He let them fear the worst. And the worst was what happened to them. Gary Leon Ridgway would be convicted of murdering 49 women in Western Washington State. He confessed to killing 48 in 2003 to avoid the death penalty. He was given 48 life sentences plus another 480 years, 10 years for tampering with evidence in each of the 48 murders. And then in 2011, 49th body was found and he was given another life sentence. He claimed over 20 additional murders on top of the ones he was convicted of. Feels like any sense. It involves allowing you to still live when you've been convicted of killing 49 human beings. Uh, Seems a little soft, but it was the only way to get closure on so many homicide cold cases. So now, sadly, this complete fucking dirtbag, still alive, currently incarcerated at the age of 69, at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington, where you know damn well he's making a lot of 69 jokes. Uh, Why did he do it? How did he do it? How did he get away with it for so long? He He killed without being caught for over 15 years. Almost 20 years. We look into all uh, of that and more as we suck on one of the worst human beings the Pacific Northwest has ever produced today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy, happy Monday, Time Suckers. On the Master Sucker, Suck Master. He who sucketh the most, he who sucketh on high. I'm Dan Cummins, and I may actually be a wackadoodle. Maybe a little bit, sure. And you, you are definitely listening to Time Suck right now. Welcome to or welcome back to the Cult of the Curious and uh, hail Nimrod. Hail Lisa- Lucifina, fellow Wanderer. Long episode, but don't uh, fade at the end today. Maybe the most interesting Time Sucker updates we've had so far. A lot of weird shit been happening when people listen to the recent exorcism two-party we had a few weeks ago. Uh, thanks for keeping my new stand-up comedy album, Maybe I'm the Problem, uh, on the top of the charts this past week. This is that Pandora Exclusive. It's out now in all the major online digital album retailers. Hope you download it. Hope you love it. Hope you rate it to help others do the same. Maybe I'm the problem is out now. Um, uh, Time Suck brought to you again by the My West Coast Buds podcast. Yes, yes, and yes. Hosted by comic Kush King, Time Sucker Joe DeMeo. My West Coast Buds is an inside baseball look at cannabis, coffee, comedy, and spirits some of Joe's very most favoritist things and so much more. It's a fun conversation where you can learn about all kinds of stuff. On today's my West Coast Buds episode, barroom Blunders. Guys do a live podcast from the Undertow Comedy Festival. Speak with comedian Shane Moss. I know Shane well. Jake Silberman, Caitlin Warehouser, AJ Foster about the craziest alcohol-related experiences. Four comics telling four really funny stories. Uh, I'm not familiar with the three of those guys. I'm sure they're fantastic. Shane, I I, I know him and I know his story will be great. Uh, in a room full of fantastic beer drinking coastal folk. So it's going to be a great atmosphere. Time Suck fans, Ben and Joe, really appreciate your support. They've been receiving a lot of love from Time Suckers and they don't take it for granted. If you're enjoying the show, please uh, write a quick review on iTunes in the store there. So listen, subscribe to My West Coast Buds podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, other places, including, of course, mywestcoastbuds.com. Link in today's episode description. Also find them in the sponsor section of the app. You just push your goddamn button. Uh Hunchley, let's talk about Hunchley, man. Uh, right after we talk about our second sponsor, uh, Jupiter's Twist. Yes, Time Suck is also brought to you by Jupiter's Twist. A really fun new board game where you and a friend stick needles in your nipples. Start twisting. See who can make it the most times around. How far can you make it around the areola before passing out from excruciating pain? One twist, amateur hour. Two twists, now we're talking. And we're screaming. Three twists, where the fun and the tearing begins. Four twists, you're winning Jupiter's twist, but losing life. Five twists, get the Guinness people on the phone. You're about to either set a new world record or bleed out. So head to Jupiter'twist. twist What the fuck am I talking about? No. That, of course, is not a sponsor. But we do have another kick-ass sponsor, Hunchly. That's all I was going to get to. Another awesome company also ran by Time Suckers. I love it. Uh, I love that there's just more and more time suck squeezed in here. You time suckers know that I have to do a shit pile of research for every episode. Google searches, endless Wikipedia pages, endless news articles, forums, in the dark, seedy, underbellies of the internet. I've got a hundred tabs open, has time. I don't even know how I ended up in so many rabbit holes. Where, where am I? Damn you, Lucifina. Where have you put me? Well, let me tell you about a tool that helps put an end to the madness. It's called Hunchly. Hunchly kicks ass. You just turn it on when you're using Google Chrome and it captures and keeps track of every page that you visit so you don't forget where you've been. The best part is that Hunchly does this automatically so you never have to stop your research to worry about taking screenshots or copying and pasting URLs. You tag pages to keep them organized, take notes on interesting pages, clip photographs all from the intuitive Hunchly dashboard. Hunchly can even track phone numbers, email addresses, names, Whatever other piece of information is relevant to your investigation and notify you when those pieces of info are found on the page you're looking at. You got your eyeballs on so much more. Hunchly is used by podcasters, police officers, private investigators, journalists, weirdos, great people, cybersecurity researchers, financial investigators, lots of people all over the world. And you get 15% off your Hunchly purchase when you head to Hunch, H-U-N-C-H dot L-Y. H-U-N-C-H dot L Y and use the coupon code TimeSuck. That's right. Hunch Lee. Or you can just go to the TimeSuck app or webpage, head to the sponsor page, click their logo. We love Hunch Lee and we know you will too. Uh big thanks to all the TimeSuck faithful. Made it to Spokane Live Green River Suck last night at the Spokane Comedy Club. So fun, man. The, 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 the some bros, some bros from the Sweet Box Delivery Service brought me some uh some stuffed bagels that I had for breakfast this morning. So that's pretty cool. New little Spokane business. Might be sponsoring some uh, some Time Suck episodes. Nice nice fellas. Tasty bagels. Um, so much fun to have a nice full-size crowd of dedicated suckheads, man. Bunch of Time Suckers wearing their swag, bringing their positive energy. Uh, I'll release a taping for the Space Lizards, uh, space lizards via Patreon here soon. Uh, Reverend Dr. Josh Krell will get it all, all souped up and, and palatable. Uh, we emptied the keg of Time Suck IPA that was brought to you. Uh, brought to the club, excuse me, for the event. And I got to say, man, great beer. Oh, man, I drank uh, a big tall boy myself and so good. Young Buck Brewing knocked it out of the park. They're time suckers as well. Uh, for Spokane area suckers, the beer will be available for an unknown amount of time. I guess, you know, until it's gone. At Steel Barrel Tap. That's the Steel Barrel Tap room on Madison Avenue. It's downtown at the Backyard Brewing on Argon in the Valley. Uh, and this Thursday and Friday, May 10th and 11th at the Big Dipper Bar and Rock Club. Uh, and then hopefully if it sells well you know, you guys drink it up, we'll, we'll be doing a lot more. I hope so. It's a great fucking brew. Uh, I'll be at the Sacramento Punchline this week- weekend, May 10th through the 12th, based on emails. A lot of cool-ass time suckers. Going to be showing the fuck up. Hope you're one of them. May 31st through June 3rd, be at the Tempe Improv. Hoping it's uh, not over 1,000 degrees when I land in Phoenix like it was last time. If I remember correctly, last time I landed in Phoenix, it was uh, 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, I didn't even have to uh, deboard the plane. We just we landed. The plane melted, and I just I ran for my life. Uh, no, it's a great club. It's going to be a blast. Uh, and I believe uh, one of the guys from the dollop is going to be doing the stand-up shows with me. Uh, Gareth, I believe, will be there. That's what I've heard. That's the rumor. June 8th and 9th, I'll be at the Draft House in Washington, D.C. Tickets are on sale. June 15th through 16th, will be at the Funny Bone in Des Moines, Iowa. Two nights only. Tickets on sale there as well. July 15th, doing a live Timesuck podcast in Orlando with the Tom and Dan crew. Tom and Dan from Mediocre Time. We're doing it up. Going to take them on a suck. It's going to be fun. Can't wait to get that recorded. Can't wait to do that show. More tour dates at uh, dancummins.tv, La Jolla, Dayton, Tampa, Palm Beach, Chicago, Sunnyvale, Portland, Tacoma, Columbus, Grand Rapids, and more coming up in 2018. Uh, Big thanks to everyone who got the limited edition Pooty and Juju mugs. That was fun. And uh, speaking of merch, I know a lot of you tried to get the Flat Earth Tour shirts on tour recently, and you didn't because I fucking can't carry enough because I only have so many suitcases and arms. Uh, I'm going through an arm shortage. I have two. I need seven. And, uh, and you know, I was going to sell those only at the live shows, but that's not fair that you came to the show, you tried to get your shirt, and then you couldn't. So uh, now those shirts are available on the store. So that's that's a dick move to not, you know, uh, let you then buy the shirt later that you came to the show to buy. So timesuckpodcast.com, that's where we're selling them right now. What are they made of? What are the 2018 Flat Earth Tour t-shirts made of? Madagascar lemur ball sack lemurs have some of the softest ball sacks on earth and uh the softest of sacks are found in madagascar and they're at their very softest when the sacks are harvested between november and april that's the hot wet humid season when those subtropical rains really are softening up that sack skin only the fucking best few assholes so those are in the store uh also cool time charity donation announcement after the top five takeaways inspired by the victims of gary ridgeway Right, doing some charity work, and I love it. Let's get to it, though, now. Time Suck 86, Green River Killer. Bed wetting. Wetting that bed past the age of five. Fire starting, animal cruelty. That is what's known as the McDonald Triad. The homicidal triad, the serial killer triad. Ridgeway had it. And I wondered as I read about his childhood... Did that early trifecta of deviant behavior greatly increase his chances of becoming a serial killer like I'd always believed? Maybe not. According to an article I found in Psychology Today, this formula may actually offer very little in the way of predicting future criminality. Instead, thanks to misconceptions and spotty research, the notion that the McDonald triad points to murder-prone kids has become an entrenched stereotype. Uh, So where did it come from? Well, let's, let's learn some shit. Let's dig in. 1963. Forensic psychiatrist Donald Ronald Ronald McDonald. No, forensic psych- uh, psychiatrist J. M. McDonald uh, observed in a paper the threat to kill that these three behaviors uh, often showed up in his most aggressive and sadistic patients. Excuse me, I'm trying to get a little thing off my tongue. There we go. There we go. McDonald had compared uh, had a little uh, had a little almonds or, or walnut shavings in my. uh, in my oatmeal this morning, and one's been on my tongue for the last hour. It's fucking tricky to get off, but I just did it. So high five myself. Now, uh, these three behaviors showed up in his uh, most aggressive autistic patients. McDonald had compared the childhoods of 48 psychotic patients against 52 non-psychotic patients, all of whom, incidentally, had threatened to kill somebody. None of whom had actually killed anybody. Just over half of these uh, these you know uh, patients were male. And they range in age from uh, all the way from 11 to 83. And McDonald relied mostly on clinical observation to make his assessment. And it's worth noting that he himself did not believe in his study or that his study necessarily had any strong predictive value. He just found this uh, information interesting. His research group was small, unrepresentative. And he just thought that it was interesting that psychotic patients seemed to be more threatening than the average psychotic patient. Uh, when as a kid, they had engaged in animal cruelty, fire starting and prolonged bedwetting, all of which, by the way, I also engaged in, uh, damn it. I set many a fire as a teen. I can't take it back. I was living in Las Vegas a couple of years too, you know, me and a friend, we'd set, uh, trees, dumpsters, sagebrush fields on uh, next to apartment complexes, ablaze, just to watch people freak out what's the fire department come? And yeah, we would just, uh, it's Vegas. That time there'd be like an undeveloped block next to a developed block. We would set the undeveloped block, uh, the brush on fire. And you know what? Maybe the fire department would put it out before it reached the, uh, apartment complex. Maybe not. Thank God it always did. But that was, you know, uh, some of the excitement was just like the, Oh God, what did we do? What chaos? Can, can, can anyone stop it? No, we were fucking savages. So I did that. And, uh, yeah, a lot of dumpster, dumpster fires were exciting. Cause you know, cause when you're on the other side of the building where you couldn't see the dumpster, it just looked like a house was on fire and people would freak the fuck out. And we liked being the being the, the reason people were freaking out. We were terrible. Also, I went to bed on a regular basis all the way through junior high school. Had a few accidents actually in high school and had at least one bedwetting uh, incident in college uh, where, I, where I woke up to find myself uh, peeing on somebody. For real. Woke up mid-arc. She was still sleeping next to me. And, uh, and that was a, a rough minute or so when I... You know, stopped peeing, you know, as fast as I could, tried to stay still, (laughs) knew that I just peed on someone, uh, knew that they hadn't woken up and was trying to figure out how am I going to handle this? And my plan was to try to rush, go grab some water from the kitchen, come back and throw it on her, right? Which is fucking super weird and she'd be angry, but I'd rather have her think I was just like a weird prankster, didn't understand how that wasn't funny, rather than a bedwetter, rather than a 20-year-old bedwetter. Uh, she did find out and I was actually very cool about it, but it's a nocturnal inuresis is a scientific term for a nighttime bedwetting. And yeah, I had that. And while I wasn't cruel to dogs and I, you know, I'd like to think I wasn't cruel to pets in general. I was borderline cruel, maybe not borderline, maybe just cruel to my sister's uh, cat Toby. And here, here's why I say that I would do this thing to Toby where I would go get one of my mom's nylons and I would stuff the, <laughs> I would stuff the cat, into one of my mom's nylons because I thought it made it look like a burglar. You know, like how you see like a burglar put a nylon on his face and his face gets all smushed up. I would do that to Toby, and Toby's face would be all smushed up, and she'd be in, like she'd be wedged into the bottom of the nylon. And that's that's kind of cruel. But I think what made it pretty cruel is then I would whip, I would spin the nylon around. I wouldn't whip her into things, but I, I would spin her around like like a helicopter blade. You know, spinning her around your head, and she would actually make a sound similar to like a helicopter. <laughs> Yeah, I can make that sound and I uh, thought it was really funny and looking back it's pretty fucked up and I also shot a lot of squirrels and small uh, birds and stuff with a, with a pellet gun uh, so you know uh did a lot of that stuff so uh, just like Gary Ridgway did that predispose me towards being a sadistic killer turns out yeah turns out it did I didn't feel comfortable admitting this earlier in the podcast you know the history like in the early episodes but I did kill a guy in Miami in 1998 you know I uh, I look. look here's the thing uh, I don't want to say that I wanted to kill him, but to be honest, I didn't, I didn't want to not kill him. So you interpret that how you want. And that was the first time I killed somebody, but we're not here to talk about me. We're not here to talk about me. And my boring details of the many unsolved murders I'm a part of. We're here to talk about Gary Ridgway. So anyway, forget about it. No, that was not true. What if I just fucking went on and never took that back and just let you just like, did he really fucking just admit to killing somebody? No. Uh Gary Ridgway did though. Let's talk about the McDonald triad. Does it really dispose one towards murder? A lot of people have believed that to be true. Well, again, despite McDonald himself questioning the implications of this finding, uh, other later researchers felt his ideas were at the very uh, you know, least worth retesting. And a couple years after his publication, a pair of psychiatrists, Hellman and Ryan, divided 84 incarcerated offenders into two groups, 53 non-aggressive offenders, 31 aggressively violent offenders. And they found that three-fourths of the violent offenders showed evidence of one or two behaviors from the triad, and that 45% showed all three, but their study too was small and poorly designed. For one thing, uh, I cannot find any info on what the percentage of nonviolent offenders displayed all three behaviors. So the results are meaningless. And I do hate that about research you see online. I see this all the time. They'll throw in a crazy stat that kind of fits the narrative, you know, that they're, they're trying to push in their article about like, can you believe that, you know, uh, that people with these behaviors kill all the time and they show like you know the stat of how many people lined up with that like we just but they don't show the comparable stat for how many people who had those same you know traits didn't kill and that and that's that's where the actual meaning of the study comes in like like for example if you said that 75% of serial killers wet the bed set fires and were cruel to animals as a kid you would then be freaked out if your kid did all three of those things right you'd be like oh my god there's a 75% chance they're going to become a fucking serial killer but then if you heard that 86% of the general population wet the bed, set fires, and were cruel to animals, you'd be like, "Oh my! That's, there's actually a good chance my my kid will not be a serial killer. Odds are against him. Sounds like a lot of people are, you know, uh, going to be a serial killer though. You know, you'd be worried like, you know, how was, how was everyone but me wet in the bed? And poor animals. This, am I the only one not abusing them? And why is there so much shit out there to burn? But seriously, the second bit of info drastically changes the importance and relevance and predictiveness of the first bit of info. You know? Otherwise, it's just you know, meaningless data. You know, it's like like I hate it when places do that. Twenty percent of people who eat bacon will get cancer. Oh my God, let's throw away the bacon. Then you find out twenty percent of the general population, regardless of diet, will get cancer. What the what the fuck? Get the bacon back over here. Then why would you tell me the first thing? Still, more researchers tried to link this childhood behavior with this criminal adult behavior. You know, with much larger groups, and better controls, and uh, and no one was actually able to prove a definitive link. So, nope. So not actually uh, a correlation. There is a correlation with callous disregard and being com- becoming a serial killer, which is a terrible phrase. Yeah, this uh, this has showed up in some studies when they said people who had callous disregard were at a greater risk for uh, homicidal tendencies. Lady, later, later, excuse me. I don't. What a weird thing to define callous disregard. Uh, interesting phrase. Um. Man, very creepy quality, you know, uh, you know, I, I feel like if that showed up on somebody's dating profile, just uh, maybe don't date them, you know, if they're like, yeah, I like staying home, watching Netflix, uh, I like uh, Vietnamese cuisine, like some pho. and I have a callous disregard for humanity. I'm going to say, I'm going to say that's a, that's a no go. Um, uh, Also a lot of authors, you know, I guess I feel like kind of ran with this because they were just, you know, too, too lazy to kind of, you know, fact check its validity. You know, they, they thought, thought it was just fun to kind of name drop the study and. And, uh, you know, talk about some correlation that was not there. And one group that did this I was surprised by was the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, right? During the 80s and 90s, they would offer evidence from their own studies pointing towards the triad as being predictive. But their research also flawed. Um, yeah, like while uh, while on the road teaching local jurisdictions about behavioral analysis, several members of the then Behavioral Science Unit interviewed offenders in nearby prisons with no effort to work within a randomized scientific design, they just gathered info from uh thirty-six convicted murderers, only twenty-five of which were serial killers, all had voluntarily agreed to talk, and uh and they came up again with the correlation they felt was positive between the triad and uh and you know, and being being a murderer. And they uh they used that data to develop theories and publish articles, and uh and again, again, but not not like proven in a clinical way. Uh, they, they did find also, though, that the the half the subjects were from single-parent homes. Three-fourths had described an indifferent or negligent parent. A majority had a psychiatric history. The mean IQ was bright, normal. And three-fourths had paraphilias, a.k.a. Uh, extreme, possibly deviant sexual fetishes, such as attraction to objects or body parts like Dahmer had. Remember, Dahmer was attracted to bicep muscles and not like in the way of, oh, that dude's hot, he's got some guns, but more in the way of, uh, oh, man, that dude's hot, I wish I could cut his arm off and fuck his bicep. Uh, remember that creep, and uh, three fourths also reported the experience of childhood abuse. In addition, although the FBI agents found evidence in many other subjects of at least one of the McDonald triad factors, they supplied no data about the percentage that had all three, and again, no comparative data from the general population to measure it up against. So who knows? So who knows? But I'm gonna I'm gonna lean towards you know. All right, doesn't it doesn't mean just because you did those things like I did doesn't mean you're gonna be a murderer. Hopefully, I'm not gonna be a murderer when I grow up someday. Uh, the only triad that I think that matters is the Bojangles triad. That's three legs, one block of muscle, pitbull awesomeness. Praise Bojangles. Praise our sweet pitbull mascot. i um, kidding. Okay. The only real triad that matters is what a fool believes minute by minute, and y'all will be there. Those are the three Michael McDonald solo career singles that have won Grammys. No, but uh, but yeah. So I, I I I gave I wrote down way too much. I'm skipping here ahead in my re- I wrote way too much about the McDonald triad. I just kept going over and over the same info. So. Uh, I had it. Ridgway had it. He acted on it. I didn't. And if you had those things in your childhood, rest a little easier, I guess, that while some people, including the FBI behavioral (laughs) unit, did think there was a correlation between having the triad and doing some naughty stuff when you're older, there has been no conclusive study proving the link. Okay, well, let's look into some conclusive stuff. Let's look into the life of this sick fuck, this Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, with today's Time Suck Timeline. Trap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Gary Leon Ridgway was born February 18, 1949, in Salt Lake City, second of three brothers. His parents, Thomas Newton Ridgway, Mary Rita Ridgway, lived in a rented room near a local high school. The oldest brother, uh, Gregory Ridgway, was also born in 1948 in Salt Lake City, Youngest brother, Thomas Edward Ridgway, was born in 1951. Public records do not reveal where the family lived at that time. Sadly, not a lot uh, uh, of other information really is known about his early childhood, about the first 12 years of his life. His family, after his capture, understandably not real interested in uh, talking about young Gare Bear. Uh, We probably know a lot more, but Gary wasn't apprehended until he was 52 years old. His mom, born in 1928, she would have been 73 by that time. uh, But according to a neighbor, she died before he was captured. I cannot find an obituary reference for his mother, but uh, some of his former neighbors remember Gary going to the funeral of his mom before he was arrested. So I feel like that's a good sign that she is dead. Uh, We'll never get to hear uh, her account of Gary's childhood. And I did find an obituary reference for his dad, who for sure died three years before his capture. So too late to get any info out of him as well. Uh, his brothers were and are religious enough to feel like it was God's place to judge their brother, not theirs. So they didn't want to talk. They continued to have a relationship with Gary after his arrest and conviction, at least for a little while. Maybe they still do. Still haven't seemed real interested in speaking with the police or the media. His ex-wives don't seem to know much about Gary's early childhood other than that uh, mom was domineering and dad was a doormat. And then Gary went to bed. And uh, we know that according to Gary. Uh, according to Gary, his mother would... Uh, also, do something you're not supposed to do if you have a bedwetter. Uh, like, I was a bedwetter, and my mom would be annoyed that I, you know, uh, had wet the sheets again because she'd have to do more laundry. I feel like it's a fairly normal response, a little irritation. Uh, Gary's mother would thoroughly wash his genitals after he wet the bed, and that seems to be a bit much. And I'm going to say, and I'm not not a pediatrician, I'm not a child psychologist, but I'm going to say, unless your kid is cognitively delayed, got to be a hard cutoff on age when it comes to thorough genital washing. I'm going to say... I'm going to say no later than six, which I know sounds high, which I know sounds high. I learned that at the livestock last night, but I I, look, I would say four. I would go with four, but, but I'm sure there are some pre-K kids out there who don't have any mental issues, so to speak, but also got some dirty dicks, you know, probably don't have a firm handle on what it means to have a clean wing. So that's why, that's why I kicked it up to six. I, I personally can stop at four. Gary had a clean wing. He had arguably the cleanest wing in town. Uh, Gary has vivid memories of his mom thoroughly washing his pea stain wing, polishing up a little corn on the cup, which is creepy. And we don't know much else about young Gary until he was 12. 1960, when Gary was 12, he raped a neighbor's dog, and the neighbor initially pressed charges, but then the golden retriever, Mitzi, was not willing to testify, and the charges were dropped. And that is insane. That had never happened. You now, in 1960, the Ridgeways moved to a house in what is now the city of SeaTac. Uh, don't think about mitts anymore. She's fine. SeaTac is a roughly 25,000-person-strong suburb of Seattle, lies in southern King County, surrounds the SeaTac International Airport. That's the Seattle-Tacoma Airport. It's actually been incorporated only since 1990, and it has a lot of cool stuff in it, so much. It has the Highline Botanical Garden, and that's it. It has an airport, garden, nothing else of interest. Uh, I thought it had Ikea, home of cheap and cheerful office furniture and uh, cheap and tasty as fuck meatballs, but that's in Renton. It's actually nearby Renton, if you care, which you probably don't. Anywho, the old Ridgeway house still stands at 4404 South 175th Street. What seems to be a very nondescript middle-class neighborhood called McMicken Heights. Shaggy scrubs and trees now conceal the view from the road. But when Gary was a kid, the yard was wide and open, big enough for family football games. Thomas Ridgeway was a bus driver, also worked for a time at a mortuary. Mary Ridgeway was a saleswoman at J C JCPenney in Renton. Let's talk about JCPenney. JCPenney, not cool now, but that store used to be the shit, right? I'm pretty sure the bra section of that big old JCPenney 80s catalog is the first place I discovered my sexuality. One day, flipping through the pages to make it to, to, you know, the big ass toy section where they always had so many great toys and, you know, in color pictures of super happy looking kids playing with the latest, greatest Lego sets, GI Joe figures and accessories, planes, tanks, bases, they had Ataris. Nintendos, they had Nerf guns. They had the best remote control cars that I knew of. Now I realize hobby stores, you know, had some nitro gas shit that I didn't even know about. And J.C. JCPenney had, you know, cheap battery D powered bullshit, but thought it was cool. And one day trying to get to that section, hit the bra section and was not grossed out. Instead, I was like, oh, I like this. I can see a lot of these women's boobs and it's great. I can see an outline of some parts of their vagina areas. And I don't even know that it all is in there yet, but I like it. I do not I don't know fully what's all in there now. But I still like it, and how did my favorite catalog get even fucking better? Anyway, gotta, ah, getting way off path. Damn you, Luciferina! Your glorious visions of distracting '80s boobs and panties. Gary's mom worked there, JC Penney. Virtually impossible to put the next few years in any kind of chronological order. All we have to go on is the recollections of old neighbors, childhood friends, classmates, and ex-girlfriends. So this next little kind of you know chunk is like a collage of things uh, of, of Gary being in junior high and high school. Same neighbors that would recall young Gary coming over and splashing in the backyard pool with their kids, sitting in their living room, watching TV, uh, recalled him as just being bright, polite, frankly, uh, pretty nondescript. Gary's second wife would later assert that his mom was overtly sexual and dressed like a prostitute. However, uh, old neighbors heavily dispute that account, and you'll find that when you look into Gary if you do, a lot of disputed accounts uh, of his childhood. Uh, Gary himself hasn't talked a ton about it, not in detail. And, and frankly, it's hard to understand what the hell he is talking about half the time. Not an eloquent speaker. Uh, more on that a little bit later. Other than snapshots from neighbors, coworkers, childhood acquaintances, and ex-wives, um, a lot of a lot of his recollections of childhood come from Gary himself, and and that's troublesome because he wasn't known for being super honest. He would actually end up passing two separate polygraph tests later in his young adulthood. Um, The account of Gary's sexed-up mom is disputed by a woman who lived next door to the Ridgeways, you know, who said that, you know, she she dressed modestly and just wore her jeans, 90% of the time. And and I'm guessing not sexy 1960s flower child jeans. Probably more like mom jeans, straight leg cut, not heavily tapered at the bottom, form obliterating instead of form-fitting. The same neighbor remembered Mary uh, uh, as a good neighbor. The mom recalled her being a skilled and avid gardener, someone who turned her yard into a miniature park. They remember her years after Gary become a grown man playing badminton and volleyball. You know, with the granddaughters, uh, you know some of uh, uh, Gary's brothers' children. Bruce Rivard also lived next door to the Ridgeway family throughout the 1960s. As a child in SeaTac, he played regularly with Eddie, Gary's younger brother. And Rivard remembers family football games. Remembers the uh, Ridgeways tinkering around with cars in the garage. They were Chrysler men. Gary Ridgeway was the family favorite, according to him. Uh, Other friends, classmates, and teachers remembered Gary as an achiever. He was a popular brother. An the track team member who ran for student office at Taiyi High School. But again, this one seems disputed to me. Uh, you got people remembering him being an achiever. However, uh, he was 20 when he finally graduated high school. So was he an achiever? Uh, he, he told investigators he was a slow learner and a poor reader. He was held back two grades before graduating Taiyi High School. So if he really was an achiever, does not speak well about the overall educational status of Taiyi High School in the 1960s maybe not the best school he was going to right if the 20 year old graduate uh, graduate is the fucking achiever oh gary man he was the best we had he's the best we ever seen in Tai. he graduated at 20 can you believe it can you believe it it was unheard of to make it out of high school in E in the 60s before the age of 25 i graduated at 34 i mean it was hard to get in high school before the age of 18 but gary man there was just something different about him he just had a drive and a vision that you just didn't see Again, conflicting stories of his youth. Uh, Bruce all, uh, also recalled that the Ridgeway parents were strict, especially with the two younger brothers. The mother would scream at the boys, he said, and the father would spank them. Rivard said, I, I could sit up in my treehouse, look into their yard, and i I'd just hear cries of, Dad, no, Dad, no, and they were getting beaten with the belt or a stick or whatever. So that sounds terrible when you hear that. But again, other neighbors, uh, I found in articles, you know, talking about the— uh, you know, after he got caught back in the early 2000s of these articles where they interviewed the rest of the neighbors, like Tacoma Papers and stuff. And they were like, no, nah, I don't remember that. So a lot of disputed information. Um, the Andersons who live next door, they're, they're uh, deeply skeptical of allegations, you know, that the father beat the boys. Uh, they, you know, they don't claim to know what went on in the house, but they never heard anything like that in the yard. Uh, one of Ridgway's girlfriends said Gary was extremely close to his mother growing up, but could never please her. Mary Ridgway, she said, wore the pants in the family. And, uh, and also that, that was said uh, in, in court by uh, Marcia Winslow, Ridgway's second wife. And she remembered Mary Ridgway yelling at her husband continually. She said that in court. And also in uh, court documents, Winslow described seeing Mary once break a dinner plate over her husband's head. And he didn't retaliate. This came up in other articles, too. I don't know if, like, apparently, like, plate, plate breaking was a big thing. Uh, he would just get up from the table and just leave the room. Got to say, man, pretty solid man move right there. Don't even acknowledge the plate just being broken over your head. You just fucking get up you quietly walking out of the room. Sadly, though, old dad, old Tommy Ridgway didn't just keep on walking like you're supposed to in that situation. What you're supposed to do is calmly get up, calmly walk, just, you know, the fuck on out of the house and straight to the police station and file charges. Somebody breaks a plate over your head, especially in front of company, in front of guests, getting a plate broken over your head. You don't go to marriage counseling. Uh, I'm going to say it's over. Uh, I don't want to treat divorce lightly, but I'm going to tell you right now, if someone breaks, breaks a plate over your head, get the fuck out of that relationship. There was uh, there's no good reason to have done that. Head bloody equals marriage over in that situation. Gilbert, Mendiola's family, moved in uh, next door to the Ridgeways when Mendiola was in seventh grade. He and Gary became good friends, often walked to school together, and then Mendiola stopped walking to school with Gary one day uh, when Gary killed him. Yep, Mendiola, uh, Mendiola uh, would later recall being really shooken up by getting killed by Gary. He didn't appreciate it. He said Gary murdered him a few times growing up and it bothered him. Always stuck with him. He'd get murdered. That doesn't make any sense, does it? No. Mendiola saw no signs of the strict parenting. Revard remembers. Uh, said he also didn't really know about Ridgeway's parents. You know, he said that Gary uh, was just a, seemed like a been a nice guy, interested in sports and girls seemed normal. Other friends and classmates offer similar memories of Ridgeway. personable like cars, played freshman football. Nice guy, but pretty average. Nice mom, nice dad, didn't really stand out, said one former classmate, uh, Tim Schinners. Ty graduate Terry Rochelle, fifty two years old. Uh, at the time of the interview, rec- remembers uh, Ridgeway showing up on Saturday nights at a youth nightclub run by local uh, by a local Methodist Church. Typical kid stuff. Uh, that doesn't sound fun, by the way. Methodist Church nightclub, youth nightclub. Sounds like a blue ball factory, right? Sounds like uh, sounds like probably a lot of trips to the bathroom were made to adjust youthful boners. Not, uh, to not be shamed by the, by the, by guardians, uh, tie, uh, Ridgway often got into minor scrapes. It seemed going to the principal's office, but nothing bad. Rochelle said, Rivard uh, said Ridgway had no problems with girls in school. Alan Sample, who attended uh, Highline community college with Greg, uh, Ridgway also remembers Gary remembers him as a ladies man. Never had any trouble getting a date. Sample said. So just kind of this, you know, all these random kind of, you know, uh, memories of this guy. And basically I think, you know, throughout, you just get a picture of, of a dude who, you know, by all accounts was just normal, who seemed normal by almost everyone who remembered his, you know, some people thought of him as achiever. sometimes, you know, it seemed like maybe he was a little behind the curve with, you know, graduating a couple years too late. Others remember him as a ladies' man. He played sports a little bit. Didn't seem to be a start. Just again, fairly normal childhood. Um, No one he went to school with recalled anything dark about Gary, but he did do some dark shit that he would later omit in in interviews, such as uh, once suffocating a cat. That's not good. There was this whole fire obsession where he started setting fires about when he he was about eight, not houses, but structures, garages and buildings. Uh, He found some uh, newspapers once stacked in a garage, a few houses away from their house on Day Street. He's playing with matches and he just uh, set the fire. He heard the fire engines come. He hid in his basement in his home. He didn't come out for a long time, not until after dark, I guess. And Nobody knew he did it. When he was older, he was playing with matches in a dry field at Long Lake where his grandfather owned some property. He lit the grass and then uh, tried to stomp it out, I guess, kind of, but it got away from him. Didn't mean to do it, he'd say, but his fire always fascinated me. He liked fire. And there was one particularly disturbing uh, incident of violence in his childhood. And this is this is interesting to me because it did not fit his later M.O., Uh, but, but this isn't one of my weird stories. This kid would later testify in court as a grown man. When Gary was about 15, just so random, there was no other incident like that, that uh, ever came out in an interview or anything about him. When he was about 15, maybe 16, walked up to a first grade boy near some bushes on a street corner and stabbed him in the side, like stabbed him basically essentially in the liver with a knife. And the six-year-old, wearing a little kid's cowboy hat at the time, just asked Gary Ridgway, uh, why did you kill me as blood streamed from the stab wound in his side? And he ran in his little cowboy boots, ran towards home, and instead of answering him, Ridgway, uh, he just said, I always wanted to know what a fella like to kill somebody. And then uh, the kid went to the hospital, like for several weeks, uh, almost died. The incision to repair his liver it was about a foot long. Um, and he would later also remember just, you know, Ridgway just laughing as he walked away. At the time, of the stabbing police were not able to find out who did it. Gary got away with it, and then eventually that uh, the kid moved to uh, King County. In the, the, I'm sorry, moved from King County, Washington, to California with his family. And, uh, and he didn't tell this story until a King County sheriff's detective was able to track him down in 2003 and have him testify at Ridgeway's trial. So pretty disturbing. Uh, randomly just stabbed a kid when he was a teen. And, uh, and here's something else pretty creepy that would manifest itself later in uh, Gary's uh, life his adult life and his killings. His father, Tom, worked briefly at a funeral home during uh, Gary's childhood. And supposedly, uh, one time he told a story uh, when he was home that Gary overhears, he's talking to some grownups, Gary overhears this story of his dad talking about a coworker at the funeral home who apparently enjoyed engaging in necrophilia. In time, this story would become the subject of, of Ridgway's teenage sexual fantasy. He, just, he loved the idea of being able to have sex with someone who was dead because then he wouldn't get caught. This is his words. No feelings, she wouldn't feel it. What a weird perspective on sex, by the way. Clearly, he was meant to feel ashamed of sexuality growing up if he didn't want the woman he was having sex with to feel the sex, which is kind of the point of it. Uh, You're supposed to feel it, and supposed to feel fucking great. You know, I wonder how many sex crimes and murders are, are really, if you trace it back far enough, the result of the perpetrator being made to feel ashamed of sex and sexuality as a kid. You know, we often want what we're not supposed to have and what's taboo, and what if the urge to have sex, a primal, totally natural, Powerful urge that none of, us, none of us can control having. you know, What if that urge wasn't just so taboo in our culture? Would that result in less sex crimes? You know, if sex wasn't made to be such a big deal. Would rapists have less desire to rape? I don't know. I, I really don't, but I think it's an interesting uh, question to ponder. Something to think about. Uh, and then there's the creepy shit centering around his bedwetting. Where, you know, again, according to Gary, when he wet his bed, his mom would berate him in front of his brother's. Stand him up in the shower and give him a cold scrub down while paying, quote, special attention to his dirtiest parts. That is his genitals. A lot of wean washing, like we talked about. A lot of sack scrubbing. Also, according to Gary, Mary Ridgway, did uh, these ritualistic type cleanings when she was barely clothed herself. That's according to him. Yeah, you know, maybe she was wearing some of that sexy ass J.C. Penny shit. Man wearing some tight ass mom jeans. Mary, wearing some kind of lacy white bras. Well, eventually, as Gary Ridgway grew into adolescence, uh, he began to fantasize about having violent sex with his mom, which is never a good thing. I am no psychologist, but I think uh, if you're thinking about fucking your mom, violent or otherwise, uh, I'm going to strongly suggest you get some therapy. You're going to sign up, uh, I would say, double-digit sessions for that. Uh, Gary claimed he wanted to scar her for life also by slitting her throat with a kitchen knife so he could relieve his frustrations at never being able to please her. Again, not a therapist. But I think if you're uh, fantasizing about uh, not only fucking your mom, but cutting her throat, triple-digit therapy sessions, all right? You're going to need a couple years of therapy, minimum, I think. April 1969, two months before he graduates from Ty-E, uh Ridgeway lands a job at Kenworth Trucking Company in Seattle, painting some big rigs, some 18-wheelers. The job would soon become the center of his working life. But he would take a brief departure from this job and join the Navy. He enlisted on August 18th, 1969. Still 20 years old, fresh out of high school. Uh, he served Where he served initially, records do not say, but his stint in the military may have helped lead to a lifelong obsession with prostitution. Court records show that four months after he entered the Navy, Ridgeway's military doctors diagnosed him with gonorrhea. His wean, not so clean now. Man, mom would be furious if she would have found out. She would have fucking washed that skin flute down for days. Two, three days of scrubbing. Records also show that in the early 1980s, he told a girlfriend that he especially disliked Filipino prostitutes because of his contacts with them during his days in the Navy. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say he probably got gonorrhea from one of those Filipino prostitutes. Uh, Interesting fact, impossible for Filipinos to exhibit, excuse me, exhibit, exhibit uh, STD symptoms. They are biologically uh, not able to exhibit STD symptoms. So that's just something you should know if you are interested in uh, knowing about things that aren't true. Uh, It's nonsense. Sometime in 1970. Gary met his first wife, Quasimodo, I mean Claudia, Claudia Craig, met her in Seattle, and their courtship consisted of fucking like animals, like for real. This is is a a quote, outdoor and in-car sex marked the young couple's courtship, according to court documents. They favored a wooded area in Seward Park, a dead-end street off Military Road South, one of the many South King County side roads Gary Ridgway knew so well. Uh, the two were married in Seattle on August 15th, 1970. Soon after getting hitched, they moved to San Diego. Ridgway set out on a six-month deployment with the Navy. While he was away, court documents say his young wife had an affair. Gary was furious, but he was also cheating on her with overseas prostitutes. So, you know, a little hypocritical for him to get angry. Just, how dare you do exactly what I've been doing? Not even as bad as <laughs> what I've been doing. When Gary returned, Claudia took off uh, for Seattle, and then Gary followed. They tried to work things out. Gary discharged from the Navy, got his old job back at Kenworth Trucking. They lived with Gary's parents for a while. Gary's mom washed Gary's wean each and every morn. Not true. I don't think. Maybe. Uh, Claudia left for San Diego, moved in with a boyfriend. She would later marry in August. All of that true is, is true, except for the wean washing. Claudia never came back. She never answered a summons for divorce. Uh, the divorce was finalized in January of '72. So a very brief marriage. They contested one piece of property, a 1963 Ford. Fairlane and Ridgway got it. And as brief as this early marriage was, it, de- it did seem to really scar uh, Gare Bear. Uh, Court documents show- showed later that he spoke bitterly of this divorce to his second wife and subsequent girlfriend in racially charged terms. He claimed Claudium had moved in with several men and become a prostitute. He's always thinking about prostitutes. Uh, also said he still loved her, so very conflicted. Uh, around the middle of 1972, Ridgway met a woman who was cruising the Renton Loop Her name was Marsha Winslow. And that's right. I did say that phrase correctly. She was cruising the Renton Loop. I Googled that. Still a thing. I found an article talking about a cruise, uh, loop cruising revival started going on in 2017. The article said that for decades, teens would gather with their friends and their shiny cars, and they'd roll through the streets past the high school. Uh, George Stahl, former cruiser, said it used to take us three hours to get around that little loop that usually took us about a minute and a half. A lot of fun. Then the city shut it down. No more cruising, you damn greasers. You beat nicks. But then they brought it back. Uh, man, cruising, man, I don't know if that's the thing anymore. I really don't. I don't know if that's what the kids are into these days. But I remember doing that as a teen, Riggins, Idaho, heading up and down Main Street, a.k.a. Highway 95, a.k.a. the only street, literally the only street that ran clean through the whole mile that covered the town. If you wanted to get from the north end of Riggins to the south end of Riggins, well, you're going to take Highway 95 or you're going to fucking have to hike up a mountain. Uh, I'd be slow rolling my 1982 Robin Egg Blue Chevy Citation like a boss, like a like an idiot, like a sad Idaho kid. Sometimes blasting a little 2 Life Crew out of my speaker system that cost easily twice as much as the car was worth. More of a commentary on the car than the speaker system. Sometimes, sometimes blasting, you're like, oh, that's pretty cool, man. You're rocking 2 Life Crew. Now, also rocking Ace of Bass, depending on my mood. Right? Sometimes I want some filth from two life groups. Sometimes I want a little emotion. I saw the sun. It opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. Dun, 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 dun. I remember that one. And I remember the other one. Uh, all that she wants is another baby. Oh, I felt so emotionally connected for some reason to that baby song. I just remember thinking, like, just give her a fucking baby, man. It's all she wants. It's all that she wants uh so yeah did those uh did those uh you know songs sound phenomenal being blasted out of my Kenworth subwoofers yeah they did well Marsha Winslow she was cruising probably listening to some other stuff back in 1972 maybe listening to a little Janis Joplin maybe listening to a little uh, Led Zeppelin and then Ridgway pulled her over uh and what Marsha described one day as a police-like stop that's what they said in court documents fucking huge red flag ladies if a dude pulls you over like in a police like stop, like as if he's pretending to be a police officer. But get the fuck out of there. Right? After you figure out what's going on, get it. Never go on, never give that person your number. But Marcia did. Um, even though she thought he could have been a police officer, but wasn't. Uh, you know, thought she'd been pulled over by an authority figure, was not. Uh, but they start dating. And then during one of their first sexual encounters, I guess he calls her Claudia. Still hung up on wife number one. Uh, still got a little bit of Ted Bundy in him, I guess. Just can't let go of that first failed love. Court documents say Gary and Marsha lived together for a year and a half. No, sorry, lived together for a year and then got married in December 1973 and then had their only child, Matthew, who was born in 1975. Weird to think think about some dude only two years older than me, how he's the son of Gary Ridgway. Hope he changes his his name. Hope he didn't keep his dad's name. That that would be a curse now. Gary and Marsha also did a fair amount of outdoor and, and, and car sexing. All right, Ridgeway introduced Winslow to his favorite South County, uh, South King County uh, haunts for outdoor in-car trysts: back roads, wooded dead ends, in Maple Valley, Enumclaw, North Bend, obscure, untended turnouts along Highway 18. Dude had some very specific sexual needs, man. They knocked it out in shady spots near Star Lake, along the banks of the Green River. His wife said he specifically liked having sex outdoors, and uh, you know, combined with dabbling in bondage. And that very specifically, he liked to sneak up on her from behind the trees. And on at least one occasion, he tried to choke her using a police-like hold. She years later told investigators, that reads is pretty disturbing to me, man. And everybody has their different little fantasies. But uh, if I was a woman and some dude was uh, that I was dating was like, hey, do you want to you role play? And I was like, yeah, no, sure. That sounds fun. What do you want to do? you like a Catholic school girl? You're like, a, you're the professor. I'm a student. And then he was like, I want to head into the woods. And I want you to pretend that you're lost and afraid. I'm going to sneak up uh, on you from behind some bushes, and I'm going to fucking choke you down. I'm going to wrestle you to the ground and uh, and just fuck you like an animal. i would be like, uh, you know what? On second thought, how about instead of role playing, I call the police and you get the hell out of here and are never allowed to come within 100 yards of me again. Uh, after the birth of their son in 1975, Ridgway and Marsha joined two churches, one Bast- Baptist, the other Pentecostal. Right, They really uh, got into it for a while, wanted to cover their bases. They knocked on some doors, had some doors shut in their faces when they're trying to spread the good word, and uh, Ridgeway became angry. Uh, Marsh told detectives he became fanatical for a while about religion. He would cry frequently during church services. At night, he wanted to watch TV with the Bible in his lap. And uh, all of this, though, uh, isn't, isn't slowing down his choke in one bit, which is another red flag. If the, if the dude that you're dating has a combination of being fanatical about religion but also wants to fuck you in the woods and choke you down, get out of there. Nothing good is coming. From this relationship, I, I nothing, nothing. You know, this is this is a very disturbed individual. You need to get the hell away from. And check out this next story. Talk about red flags. I'm amazed what people put up with in relationships. Like amazed. There's so many good people to date out there. Why do some people be like, nah, I mean, I'm gonna put up with a bunch of fucking bullshit. Marsha, remembered remember one time returning home from a party with Gary, they've been out drinking. Uh, Marsha steps out of the van, stumbles towards the door. Suddenly she feels hands around her neck squeezing tighter and tighter, like Gary has snuck up from behind and started choking her. She screams, she fights, not immediately realizing it's her husband. Gary finally lets her go, then this is the creepiest part of the whole thing to me. He darts to the other side of the van and then tries to convince her that someone else did it. What the fuck? He tried to sneak up. he tried to sneak up and scare her, Marcia said, seeing if he could walk noiselessly. She said he was pretty good at it. Dude, you file for divorce at that point. That is so, cre- it's creepy. It's one thing, it's super, super creepy already, to sneak up on your partner and start choking her. Way creepier than to deny it. To jump back and be like, oh my oh my God, what just happened to you? You just choked me, you fucking psychopath. Wh- what? No, no I didn't. That's that was, some, that was some other guy. That was some other guy. Why don't you chase him? Because I, I don't want to get choked. Why am I going to chase a choker? You going to get me next? No, it's ridiculous. Oh, my God. How do you do that? Classic, classic Ridgeway, Classic Garber. Just Garber being Garber right there. Ni- uh, 1978, the Ridgeways are living in Federal Way near Dash Point State Park. The house is a rambler at the end of a cul-de-sac surrounded by acres of dense, damp, prime wood fucking forest. Uh, the church going tapers off. Marsha told detectives Ridgeway began to come home from work later and later without explanation, often returning to the house dirty and wet. Quote, dirty and wet. He also had no personal friends during their marriage. He said, so much disturbing behavior. So many reasons to get out of that relationship. Are you kidding me? No friends, comes home late, offers no explanation as to why he's dirty and wet. That's so, that is so preposterous. Solid grounds for divorce. Look, I, I love Lindsay. I love Lindsay. But if she starts coming home late from work, dirty and wet with no explanation, she's out, she's out. It would be especially weird considering we work together and live just a few blocks from the office. Uh, There would be no excuse for her to, you know, if I show up home, like we leave the office at like, you know, six, I'm home by 601. And then she shows up home at like, you know, 1 a.m. Dirty and wet. She better have a good fucking reason. And if it's a chronic thing, uh ah, ah, get out. July 4th, 1980, Gary and Marcia separate. Marcia is sick of being fucked in the woods. She's had it. She's had it with her wet, dirty loner of a husband. She moves to nearby Kent. She files from her, uh, for a restraining order, as does Gary. Uh, both claim to fear violence from the other. I feel like she had a legitimate claim, and he was probably just doing it because she did it. The federal way house was sold that same month. Divorce was finalized in May 1981. Marcia got custody of Matthew, thank God. Gary began making child support payments of about 275 a month. Spring 81, Ridgway joins a parents without partners group and quickly uh, becomes a a health benefit case manager for single parents within the group. I don't feel like he has good intentions. I feel like he's just doing this. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I I believe my own lie. That's hilarious. Uh, I'm an idiot. I I wrote down a lie about Gary Ridgway. And then I forgot that I had lied about it and I read it as if it was truth. And then I got to the point of like, no, he, that never happened. He did not even not become a fucking case manager. I'm an idiot. I just That's the first time I've done that. I fell for my own lie. God dang it. No, he didn't do that. He fucked a bunch of women in the woods. Took advantage of his position. at uh, or position. He, took, he, he joined this group. He didn't have a position. God dang it. I'm still trapped in my own lie right now. Ridgeway, he really did join a Parents Without Partners group. He didn't fucking become anything. He became a dude who trolled the group for lonely women. That's what he did. And he dated a few women uh, that court uh, documents would reveal as girlfriends A, B, and C. They didn't want their names uh, revealed in court. Ridgway met girlfriend A in May 19—I still can't believe I did that. Met her in 1981, uh, May 1981, soon moved into her West Seattle home. Patterns from prior relationships materialized. Uh, They had sex outdoors, many locations. And twice he tried to to tie her up without her consent. So similar to choking. Uh, Apparently, Gary had an insatiable sexual appetite. Girlfriend A had to ask Ridgway to back off. From his constant demands for sex. She also said he had no outside friends. The horny loner. Never a good looking relationship. Uh, girlfriend A. Asked him to move out of her home in December 1991. By then Ridgeway had met girlfriend B. They started dating. Uh, they didn't go to Ridgeway's favorite outdoor locations though. They went to her house or to Ridgeway's house. in military road in SeaTac. Which he would bought in 1981. And would live in for seven years. The house sits in the kind of neighborhood. Where many people keep it themselves. Uh, so, you know, that, that worked for Ridgeway, um, didn't talk much to his neighbors, became kind of reclusive, which, which made sense considering what he was getting up, uh, up into, uh, his house was always closed up. It seemed very private, said, uh, Desi Rosley, one neighbor whose daughter went to daycare in the neighborhood at the time. Rosalie uh, remembers, uh, passing Ridgeway's house daily, noticing a particularly messy yard. Uh, on one occasion, she said she passed Ridgeway on the street and she said, if I was walking by, I'd say hi, he would just ignore me. He was more private though than rude. He just wanted to be left alone. I'm sure he did. He suddenly had a lot going on around the time. His sex life started to take some real dark turns. About 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve, 1991, Ridgeway met girlfriend B at the White Shutters Inn in SeaTac for a Parents Without Partners function, where he was not a case manager, as I tricked myself into believing. Ridgeway was distraught. She told police later. He said he'd nearly killed a woman. Uh, the girlfriend told police he thought he meant a prostitute. And then somehow this revelation did not lead to a breakup. Gotta say, girlfriend B seems overly tolerant. You know, just, you know what, Gary wasn't perfect. What guy is? Some guys don't take out the trash or hold the door open. Some guys almost choke out prostitutes on Christmas Eve. Uh, The next month, Ridgway began dating girlfriend C behind girlfriend B's back. And when she found out a few months later, she broke up with him. So almost choking out a prostitute, that's one thing. But dating another woman, uh it's too much Cross the line. Another possible reason for their breakup was Gary's uh, terrible choice in mattresses. Yes, girlfriend B was sick of laying down and occasionally being choked on a JCPenney piece of shit when what she really wanted was to not get choked on a Lisa mattress. Yes, today's Time Suck is brought to you by epic sponsor, longtime fan of Time Suck, doer of good in the world, Lisa Mattress. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, Lisa is an innovative, direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is socially conscious and unlike today's topic, vehemently anti-murder. Zero murders go into the manufacturer of Lisa mattresses. In fact, for for every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, uh, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. They plant one tree for every mattress sold. They donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. Not to mention, with a patented universal adaptive feel, Lisa is designed for all types of sleepers, features three premium foam layers. And now Lisa also offers the Lisa pillow, blanket, foundation, and frame. So try at least a mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. There's 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door. You can also try it out in person at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City. uh, Or at the Dream Gallery in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Or at over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. And you get $125 off and a free pillow when you go to L E E S A dot com slash timesuck you can also go to the sponsor page of the app and the website just click the button right just fucking go right there back to someone now who will have a better chance of sleeping on a fellow prisoner's boner than he will on a lisa mattress gary ridgeway in april of 82 gary was having financial troubles he rented the SeaTac house to rose Hahn and her husband moved into the garage like a creeper does he was rarely home at night never on weekends Uh, Most of those weekends were spent with girlfriend C, but uh, Ridgway also spent some nights elsewhere. On May 11, 1982, he was arrested on suspicion of soliciting an undercover King County sheriff's deputy disguised as a prostitute. Girlfriend C knew about the arrest, told investigators Ridgway regarded prostitutes as things to be used. She said they planned to get married, but broke up in June of 84. Uh, Ridgway then swiftly found another girlfriend, she said. She said he was always dating somebody, you know. I guess, uh always eating somebody new. You know, he you know, had a sneaking up on, on on somebody and choking them fetish, which is which is hard to pull off alone. Also hard to uh, to, to keep a long-term relationship when you're doing that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We need to stay focused on 1982. That, that was the big year for Ridgeway. That was the year he became the Green River Killer. Gary would later tell investigators that he killed dozens of women in his military road home in SeaTac, usually in the bedroom. Uh, Those are a chance he may have started murdering women in the 1970s. His compulsion to kill really ripened in the early 80s and 1982 was the year that his first known victims began to disappear. He spent a lot of time in 82 staking out potential victims. He spent hours driving through areas known for a heavy amount of prostitution like Tukwila, Kent, Des Moines, Federal Way areas along Pacific Highway South. Uh, spent time in the Rainier Valley, Seattle's Chinatown, International District, and North Seattle along Aurora Avenue. Gary took steps to make sure the girls he picked up weren't undercover police officers he'd learned from his earlier arrest. He'd often watch them from a distance, wait for them to be picked up by other Johns, other tricks. Uh, He'd sometimes ask them to expose themselves before agreeing to pay, you know, believing that undercover officers would not do that. He'd later say prostitutes were the easiest. I went from uh, having sex with them to just plain killing them. Just said that straight up. Unlike, say, Bundy, his victims did not... a particular look he didn't care if they were black or white though he preferred white which is a weird thing that uh, i preferred killing white women uh, and, and i don't mean that as far as like a commentary on white just that, that you prefer any race to murder just weird to me um i guess i guess this whole thing is weird though right he's he's already fucking killing people why am i getting hung up on uh, on a racial preference he preferred young women uh who are relatively innocent and less likely to con him and killing was always on his mind he said Man, painting big rigs by day, choking out prostitutes by night. How strange are some of the lives people have actually led? You know, it's not a movie. It's a real human being. During the killing spree, there were a few women I didn't, for some reason I didn't kill, but there were a few, they were few and far between, he would say. Reminds me of the night stalker, Richard Ramirez, when he says stuff like that, right? Just inexplicably letting some random victims live. Uh, He also developed a number of ruses to gain women's trust in order to get them, you know, isolated in order to kill them. He would show them pictures of his son. He would offer to become a regular customer. He would offer to lend them his truck, to get them jobs, you know, feed them, pay them more than they were supposed to be asking, whatever. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't have to worry about keeping the promises because, as he told prosecutors, they were already dead. Sometimes he'd show them uh, his super-duper du- super uh, clean ween as well that mom had washed, you know, to prove he's a good guy. But like, look, at, look at my ween. Look how clean my ween. Mama says I have the cleanest weenness. Put your hand on my balls. Smell your fingers. Nothing but sweet citrus soap. Mama likes my balls to smell like an orange grove. Sorry, I just had to lighten it up for a second. It was getting too heavy for me. That probably would not work. If he's like, mama likes my balls to smell like an orange grove. I don't think that's going to build anyone's trust. I think that's going to cause them to, to to back away. July 8th, 1982, 16-year-old Wendy Lee Caulfield goes missing. A week later on July 15th, two young boys find her dead body on pilings under the Peck Bridge on Meeker Street in Kent, Washington, she had floated in the shallows of the Green River, her arms and legs entangled in a rope or similar bonds. Paper wasn't specific about the cause of death at the time. Police and Kent suspected she had been strangled. She was. The victim hadn't drowned. She'd been dead when she was placed in the river. Although she'd been in the river for several days, no one had come forward to identify her. Uh, the woman was white, estimated to be about 25 years old, 5 4, weighing about 140 pounds. A King County medical examiner, Dr. Don Ray, noted that she had five tattoos in her body, a vine around a, a heart on her left arm, two tiny butterflies above her breast across with a vine around it on her shoulder, and then a Harley-Davidson motorcycle insignia on her back. Oh, and I'm sorry, one more, an unfinished outline of a unicorn on her lower abdomen. When the description of her tattoos was published in the area papers, a tattoo artist recognized his work, and he was the one who came forward to identify her. And who was Wendy? Well, she was a troubled teen being raised by a single mom who'd already spent time in foster homes and juvenile detention facilities. She had stolen food stamps. She was a chronic runaway who dropped out of high school, or excuse me, dropped out of school completely in junior high. She had told her mom the year before that she'd been raped by a hitchhiker, and her mom, uh, a young single mom, not emotionally equipped to deal with these kind of problems, basically told her daughter that's what happens when you hitchhike, which is probably not what you're supposed to say. Uh, Wendy, like a lot of us meat sacks, man, lived a sad, troubled, short life. If you think about how many human beings have suffered similar fates, it's going to drive you mad. She lived hard and fast. She died young, died a victim, used, abused, and killed by a man only three years younger than her mom. July 17th, 1982, two days after Wendy's body is found, less than 10 days after she disappears, Giselle Ann LaVorne, a 17-year-old teen runaway and prostitute, also is gone. Giselle was the youngest child of an upper middle-class family in the San Fernando Valley where her father had his own insurance business. She was very intelligent. She read constantly. Her IQ was tested at 145, right? That's well above genius level on some tests. So I feel like uh, it's important to point out. There's like sometimes this uh, stereotype, or this belief that like, oh, well, you know, they, they, got, they got caught, they got killed because, you know, they're not as smart as I am. She was, she was plenty smart and he still got her. She was also an unhappy teen girl who'd begun to run away from, the, for, from home when she was only 14. Dropped out of school in the 10th grade. She'd been miserable in California ever since the family moved there from New Orleans a year a few years earlier, she had no ties to the Seattle area, but earlier that year, her boyfriend had persuaded her to leave California with him. Her boyfriend, Jake Baker, known as Jack Back, a young man, several order, several, several years older than Giselle. Quick note to dads out there. If you're 17 year old or any kind of, you know, teen is a date a, a much older dirt bag who goes by Jack Back, buy a ski mask, buy a ski mask, buy some gloves, get a solid alibi from a friend you trust. Then you find Jack back and you beat him within an inch of his fucking life. And you make it clear he's never to see your daughter again if he wants to live. Kidding, not kidding. Jack back, man. What a dumb name. Anyway, anyway, he was a street savvy young dude. Recently got a job driving a cab on the SeaTac strip and Giselle had headed up there to join him. And within a few weeks, she was turning tricks. Oh, classic Jack back, classic Jack back bait and switch. All this was never proven. Feels like Jack back might've been pimping her out. At the very least, he knew about what she was doing, knew it was dangerous, the life she was leading. On July 17th, she met the wrong John, Gary Ridgway. September 25th, 1982, her body was discovered in a wooded area seven miles from the Green River. Another teen prostitute strangled, dumped off in the dirt. July 25th, 1982, third Seattle-area prostitute goes missing, 23-year-old Deborah Lynn Bonner. Debra was a slender, exotic-looking woman who grew up in Tacoma, along with two younger brothers, like Wendy. She had dropped out of school, in Deborah's case, two years before graduating. With little education, she had trouble finding jobs. She had been uh, excited about taking a test to join the Navy, but didn't pass recently. She had still planned to get her GED, start a different kind of life, but then Deborah met a pimp and heroin junkie, Max Tackley, and he treated her like a queen. He had a newer model, Thunderbird, that traveled a lot, and all she had to do to keep that life going was, you know, sell her body for sex. And after meeting Gary, her body would be found on August 12th, 1982, on the banks of, you guessed it, the Green River. August 1st, 1982, 31-year-old Marcia Faye Chapman goes missing. 17-year-old Cynthia Jean Hines goes missing 10 days later on August 11th. 16-year-old Opal Charmaine Mills goes missing the very next day on August 12th. A local man rafting the Green River looking for antique bottles or anything else of value finds all three of their bodies August 15th. King County detectives now know for sure they have a serial killer on their hands. All the women had been strangled, all dumped in the Green River, all prostitutes. Someone had even stuffed two of the women's vaginas with rocks after they died. Not do that to all the victims, but some horrific. Uh, August 16th, King County police set up the Green River Killer Task Force, the biggest police task force they had set up in that area since the Ted Bundy murders in the 1970s current Washington state Republican Congressman, Dave Reichert was one of the detectives who worked for many, many years on that exact task force between August 29th, Christmas Eve. That's right. Christmas Eve, nine more women would die. Sad enough that some poor prostitute is working on Christmas Eve. And then you have to fucking kill her. My God, nine additional young women, all working the streets, all between the ages of 15 and 23 would disappear and end up in the green river. The remains of one of these girls, Rebecca, Becky Morero would not be found until 2010. Gary Ridgway would eventually be convicted of killing 16 women in 1982 alone. And these are just confirmed kills. We'll never know what the actual total is. And what else was Gary up to in 1982? You know, just living the nondescript life of a working-class 33-year-old bachelor. Painting 18-wheelers, at the Kenworth factory in Renton, paying child support, seeing his son Matthew sometimes on the weekends. He was handy around his bachelor pad, liked to keep his yard nice and tidy, fix up the house, do a little antiquing sometimes. He was thrifty, he, he dated. Probably watch some New Heart, some M.A.S.H., some Threes Company. That shit was popping in 82. And in a way, uh, you know, his normal life outside of his obsession with murdering prostitutes is a little more disturbing than if he was just some Richard Ramirez, you know, always doing something fucked up, always doing some hard drugs, hooking up with prostitutes, burglarizing, worshiping the devil, raping, murdering, some combination of the above. I go back and forth, like, which is scarier? Is Ramirez scarier? Sometimes I think that because he was pure evil. Or is a Ridgeway type scarier because you could, you, you're less likely to see him coming? Right, like, like if Richard was your neighbor, you would know something was up. That's why he lived in that sketchy-ass Hotel Cecil in downtown L.A., surrounded by other dirtbags. If Richard Ramirez lived next door to you in the suburbs, you know, the only time you'd be looking at him is when you were peeking out from between your blinds, from behind a locked door. Just, you know, what are you up to, creepy McCreep? Well, on November 9th, 1982, one woman gets away from Ridgeway, and she'd be the only woman to get away. Uh, Ridgway met a prostitute named Rebecca Gway, arranged a date that chilly November day. Ridgway agreed to pay her $20 for sex, which seems low. Uh, then the two drove to an area near South 204th Street where Ridgway wanted to go into the woods. Gway said Ridgway tried to choke her, but she managed to escape and run to a nearby trailer. She bit him and got away. And she said she was certain Ridgway meant to kill her. said his face looked white, clammy, cold. She would let her tell police. She'd also tell them she thought she was definitely going to die. But she didn't sadly, though, she was the only one who got uh, escaped from him when it got to that point. In 1983, uh, he would really ramp up his killing. 23 more women would disappear from King County. Just 23 in 1983. All at the hands of uh, Gary, you know, the Green River Killer Ridgeway. Five vanished in April alone, all between the ages of 15 and 26. Sadly, only five of those bodies, uh, you know, were actually found in 83, which is why detectives, uh, you know, had, had an even harder time catching this guy. They didn't have as much evidence to work with because a lot of the bodies wouldn't be found until years later. One of the bodies found belonged to Gail Lynn Matthews, 24 years old, a woman who was not a career prostitute. She's a woman who had been married, lived a somewhat normal, if impoverished life. And she was just currently down in her luck when she met Gary. She was, she was dating a guy and the two of them were staying in the City New West budget motel and they needed some quick cash or they were going to get kicked out of their room. And uh, she was last seen sitting in the passenger seat of one Gary Ridgway in his truck. By the time her remains were found, uh, they would take a medical record of bones she'd had broken in a boating accident to be able to identify her body. May 4th, 1983, uh, Des Moines police, Washington, not Iowa, uh, spoke to Ridgway about the disappearance of Marie Malvar. The prostitute had disappeared four days earlier, last seen in a truck that resembled Ridgway's, and she was, in fact, one of his victims. But her, but her body wouldn't be found until September, so the police didn't have enough evidence to arrest him at the time. And there was a lot of other suspects, man. So you, and if you're thinking, like, well, why didn't they catch him with all these suspects around him? Well, uh, or all these women, you know, like disappearing around him. Well, the women weren't just paying their bills off off the business of Gary Ridgway. They were seeing a lot of Johns, a lot of sad, lonely dudes. So the police had, you know, an alarming amount of suspects in the, in the disappearances of these prostitutes. On November 16th, 1983, uh, the Green River Task Force does interview Ridgway. He'd been ID'd as being seen with, uh, you know, again, some of the prostitutes that have recently gone missing, but not enough evidence to, uh, to lock him up and they have to let him go. And then in 1984, two prostitutes, Don White and Paige Miley, speak to the Green River Task Force specifically about Ridgway. And he's brought in again for questioning. And this time, uh, in an attempt to clear his name, he voluntarily takes the lie detector test and he passes. Man, the balls on this guy. He knew he fucking knew he was the guy. And he volunteers to take the test. Not sure what gave him the courage to make him think he could pass it, but I guess Gary just doesn't think like the rest of us, man. Investigators would believe that Gary Ridgway's psychopathy would help him pass it. The polygraph test detects stress, and Ridgway just didn't have any. And uh, when asked later how he did pass it, he said, I just uh, relaxed and took the polygraph. Ah, This fucking weird savant. Despite uh, passing the test, Gary's murder spree does slow down in 84. I think the detectives having questioned him a few times probably shook him up. Price spooked him, and, and also the Green River Task Force is now in full force, which it's making it harder to sneak off with victims. In November of 84, they also, uh, the task force brings in uh, Ted Bundy, Time Stuck Topic 11, uh, to work with the task force from behind bars to help profile Gary. They're taking this shit seriously. Well, Bundy's help does not lead to Gary's capture, but his profile of Gary was fairly accurate. Uh, they're keeping an eye on known prostitution areas. They're tracking Johns. All of this does slow Gary down. But you know what doesn't slow down? Not ever. Today's final sponsor, Time Suck, is brought to you by Chikatilo's Wrestling Academy, making soft men hard. At Chikatilo's Wrestling Academy, students of all ages, but mostly students younger than eighteen, are instructed in all manner of Chikatilo wrestling techniques. And through Time Suck, you can now purchase a ticket to the 2018 Chikatilo Wrestling Academy Sleepaway Summer Camp. Spend five days, five nights. Along the banks of a yet-to-be-named river in a never-to-be-named location where Chikatilo's talented team of instructors will show you the Chikatilo Pelvic Push, the Green River Gary Woodland Chokehold, and the Dahmer Drill. There will also be additional events like an Ed Gein Lucha Libre Mask Making Workshop where you will learn how to make a real wrestling mask out of a former summer camp attendee's real face skin. Use the promo code TIMESUCK when you sign up online to get a free pair of edible see-through Lucifina panties. Hey, Lucifina! Also, a bonus, Pootie and Juju Lunchbox. Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. And, while supplies last, a limited edition Michael motherfucking McDonald Yamo Time Suck A-track. Yamo Time Suck. Whoa, 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 Yamo Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. Sorry, I know that was a lot. I know that was a lot of stuff I just threw at you. But we were talking about a lot of dark stuff, and I don't know how or the psychology behind it, but sometimes... Joking about something even darker lightens it up. And that's where he did And I love you guys. I love you guys. Want to learn new stuff. Also, not afraid of the most fucked up jokes. Sometimes I read these jokes that I've written. And I'm like, God, this is too much. But I'm going to still do it. Gary slows down to two confirmed killings in 1984. Zero in 85 and one in 86. Also in 86, the task force interviews him again. He takes another polygraph and the son of a bitch passes it again. 87, Ridgway meets newly single Judith Lynch at a bar in Seattle. She recalled he seemed like the perfect suitor. He was handsome, polite, had a good job, and treated her like a lady, she would later say. Guessing she had very low standards. She had no idea he was still on the Green River Killer Suspect list. While they were dating in 87, police obtained a search warrant issued for hair and saliva samples from his home at 21859 South 32nd Street in Kent. Get the saliva, still can't link him to the crimes. Just the the, DNA you know, matching technology was just not quite there. Uh, again, though, this close call seems to slow him down. He was only he was convicted of, uh, later. You know, he only murdered one person and for sure in 87, none in 88 or 89, one in 90, and then one last confirmed kill in, in 98. So a big gap there. Uh, so and, and part of it was that this new married life seemed to seem to take to Gary. He married uh, in 88. They bought a home in Des Moines on South 253rd Street. Uh, They lived there until 97, and he kind of had a personality shift for for that decade. He became an extrovert, went out of his way to talk to neighbors, took an almost obsessive interest in gardening, neighbors said. He kept his house up well, kept his yard up well. Said Mike Welch, who lived in the same house in 76, seemed to be a model neighbor. He was so happy in his new marriage, he almost stopped uh, killing completely. Not, Not quite. He would rape, strangle, and dump the body of Roberta J. Hayes in the western Washington woods. Roberta, a.k.a. Bobby, Bobby Joe was a woman who'd been living on and off the streets since she was 12. And on February 7th, she walked out of a Portland, Oregon jail after being arrested for prostitution, headed north. And nobody that knew her ever saw her again. Uh, years later, 91, a state parks employee discovered hay skeletal remains near a pile of debris along the dead end dirt road near uh, north of state route 410 near Enumclaw. But. For the most part, apparently at the time, he he's being a good husband and neighbor. He's having garage sales twice a month, which is weird to me. But I guess nothing stood out uh, that it was odd that he was selling. You know, no candid photos of women with their eyes on the photo scratched out like that. No bloody murder kits. No, no obvious, you know, like, what the fuck? Nope. If uh, Fridgeway had a fault, one of his new neighbors said it was that he was uh, overly friendly. The guy would say when I would walk out in the yard, I couldn't get anything done because he wanted to talk all the time. Uh, another neighbor, neighbor, Paul Winkle, agreed with that. Uh, what a strange way to think about Gary after they caught him, man. Oh, yeah, I remember, Gary. Guy wouldn't shut the fuck up. Couldn't mow my lawn when that guy was around. I don't think he strangled anybody. I think he talked those women to death. Uh, For 13 years, Judith lived with the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history and uh, this good, if too, talkative neighbor and swears she never suspected a thing. But then finally, Gary gets caught. Finally, he gets caught. Thank God. Uh, Before we dig into how he was caught, let's check in with the fools we skipped over last week, those wonderful idiots of The Internet. Idiots of the Internet. 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 In an interview video of Gary Ridgway, where while in prison, an unnamed, at least unnamed in the videos I watched, female interviewer asked Gary about his childhood, how he lured women into his car, etc., user Arizona Bay 15, great Bill Hicks reference, by the way. Uh Bill Hicks, fantastic comic, who died way too young. Um Arizona Bay being a, a, a reference to a joke he made about California crumbling into the sea. And now uh, Arizona's on the coast. Anyway, Arizona 15 points out some real idiocy in the comments, posting, this freak has probably murdered 80-plus women, but the comment section hates on the female interviewer. It's a sick world, that for sure. And, and this, uh, this poster's right, man. There are constant posts of she asks the dumbest questions, worst interviewer ever, I don't like what she's wearing, I don't like her style. And these type of comments far outweigh comments along the lines of what a piece of shit this guy is. And in my opinion, she isn't that bad, right? Yeah, she talked a lot during his interview, but she had to. He's not an engaging speaker. If you'd watch any other video of this guy, you would know that. He, he, he was very quiet, you know, with most people. You know, apparently those neighbors, you know, thought he was a chatty Kathy, but everyone else thought, you know, he was extremely shy. There was coworkers he worked with for years that would say he never spoke more than two words to him, uh, you know. And weird commentary on society that people attack her instead of him. And then one person gets even weirder with their comment. Uh, User Roberta, 119 posts, this woman is so annoying, she also another one who need treatment. She is much more worried about seducing him with her fake sweet voice and jewelry and body language than keep to herself and do professional interview. Okay. Uh, Well, uh, Roberta. She's wearing a a suit skirt, all right? She's wearing a skirt suit, not a G-string bikini. She's leaning forward to engage him in conversation. You know, she's not smushing her tits together and shoving them in his face. She's using solid, basic body language interview techniques. You're not going to get someone to warm up to an interview if you're leaning back with your arms folded. Just put out a message of, I don't like it. I don't like you. I don't like it. I don't like what you're saying. No, you got to lean forward and be like, mm, I'm interested in what you're talking about. That's what she's doing, you fucking idiot. Uh, not flirting with him. Uh, Zeb Bigfoot Bear Cove leaves my favorite comment under this video posting. He needs therapy. Death therapy cures him every time. Oh, touche. Death therapy. Well played Zeb Bigfoot. I like it. And I agree. Right. 100% cure rate with that cures those fuckers every time. Take out the trash. Snuff this piece of shit out already. Uh, another video titled Gary Ridgway, the green river killer, serial killer documentary uploaded by the serial killer documentaries channel. Uh, under this, uh, Chickasaw 963 goes full captain obvious posting just because a person is in troubles, gives no per- gives no one permission to kill them. Ah, well said Chickasaw. Oh, thanks for throwing that out there. We all needed to hear that. We all needed that <laughs> user Abdul Galad quickly points out this virtue signaler's stupidity, replying, nice conclusion, Einstein, keep at it. You may discover the answers to other important moral questions we already know. I I love I love when when people virtue signal, I'm obsessed with that right now, ever since I learned what that term was a few weeks ago. I love when people feel the need to post such obvious, stupid shit like, hey guys, listen up, everybody, hey everybody, listen up. I want all of you to know that I am 100% against prostitute murder. I don't care what kind of trouble that gets me into. I know it's a controversial stance. You know what? If I get fired from my job, if I get disowned from my family for coming out and saying that I do not think it's okay to kill prostitutes, so be it. I'm going to suffer the consequences, right? Because it's the right thing to do to let people know. I don't agree with wanton murder. You fucking idiot. Uh, Mark Preston has my favorite post I've seen in a while. Uh, favorite post out of my last few idiots, in the internet sections. He uses. I love when people do this. When people use a random video to unleash their own personal bullshit that has very little to do with the video. Like they start off kind of commentating about the video, but then go into this weird personal horrific tangent. And uh, and and he has an agenda. Uh, where he is he is not. A, he's very misogynistic, and it shows with his post here. So <laughs> he says King County Washington sucked ass in the 1970s. All caps on sucked ass. Angry women were doing their women's lib stuff. Ted Bundy had killed in the region and then ultimately was being adjudicated in Florida while the Green River bodies were being discovered. I remember that summer, 1982, I delivered the Seattle Times and noticed headlines during that era it sucked. One thing that I noticed during that sickening time were how were how cruel should be what was how was how cruel and angry the women were in King County. The young ones were seeking empowerment. The older ones had some leftover European angst. What? I've never heard somebody say leftover European angst. I believe the motivation for some of these serial killings were the shitty, angry women and the shitty weather. I never dated a woman that grew up in King County. My high school girlfriend was from Twin Cities. The one before that was from Bay Area. Okay. Uh, The only King County one I hooked up with, and liked moved to California after high school. That's not been in your narrative. I moved to California after high school and spent time in San Diego. Fucking doesn't matter. Uh, getting off getting off track here now. Uh, I had a lot of friends in Mission Beach from all over the world. Oh, all right, don't care. Uh, there were two young women that I couldn't stand, although I did not know them. What? That makes no sense. I couldn't stand them, but you didn't know them? All right. Turned out they were from Bellevue. Years later, I was working in East Boston on an IT project. And there was a woman on our team that I despised the last day before everyone flew home. She told me she grew up in Renton. Huh? Fucking okay. I have a friend in Bay area. I love how he says, not in the, just I have a friend in Bay area. That is a kind soul. His wife is a total jackass and many people hate her. I learned years after I also hated her that she grew up in Bellevue. I grew up in Bellevue too. I have many girlfriends and bosses. (laughs) I've had, excuse me, many girlfriends and bosses from all over the U.S. The ones from California are the nicest and friendliest. Women from King County, Washington are toxic. Jesus. So Mark was a little long-winded there. And in case you tuned out a good chunk of his rant, like I did the first couple times I read it, what he's basically saying regarding the Green River killings because he's a piece of shit is, I fucking get it. Totally get it. Look, I'm not saying those women deserve to die. But what I am saying is that they brought that shit on themselves. If you don't want to get choked out in the woods after getting fucked, don't be so uppity. Let go of that European angst, whatever that is. Stop wanting to be empowered. How dare you uppity broads want to be empowered? Keep your shoes off, stay in the kitchen, stay pregnant, and shut the fuck up when the men are talking. Oh, Mark, while I don't hope that you also get murdered, if some woman does kill you, and then a video gets posted of them being interviewed inter- Interviewed about killing you, I may just post about how I totally understand why you were killed. You were killed because you're an idiot of the internet. Idiots of the internet. internet. All right, let's wrap up this timeline. Let's wrap it up. Oh, Mark. On November 30th, 2001, 52-year-old father married man living in the Seattle suburbs, Gary Ridgway, is arrested as he leaves that truck painting job, job he's had now for over 30 years. And his arrest marks the end of the longest running serial killer investigation in U.S. history. I thought this was a cool note uh, for his arrest. The handcuffs used on Gary, uh, you know, when they arrested him were an old pair of handcuffs given to the arrested officer, Detective Mullinax, over 15 years earlier in 1985 by Paul Smith, a veteran King County detective who worked on the Green River Task Force, died of cancer that year. Mullenax had promised Smith's widow that he would put those cuffs on the Green River killer that his that her husband's efforts were not in vain when he caught him one day and then he fucking did it. I think that's awesome, very poetic. Uh what was the break in the case? It finally what it was DNA evidence, right? The technology finally advanced enough to link him to the crimes. Seattle detectives despite Gary passing two separate lie detector tests still always considered him a strong suspect. And then, then with, the, with the you know new DNA matching technology available, they were able to link a sample of saliva they'd been holding on to for 14 years in a cold case file with some semen found on three of the earliest victims. Detectives had been comparing the semen against DNA samples from a variety of old suspects from the early and mid-80s. And then when they looked into Gary, a new arrest popped up. He'd been arrested again for soliciting a prostitute just two weeks earlier. They found the old saliva. They needed. it. let's get this tested right away. They matched it. They headed to his job and they arrested that m- piece of just murderous trash. And then for nearly two years, investigators worked to get Gary to confess to more than the, the three murders that the DNA evidence linked him to initially. Finally, on June 13th, 2003, he did confess because he was confronted with the possibility of the death penalty and he didn't want to die. Uh, and so he confessed to 48 separate murders. And on December 18th, 2003, King County Superior Court judge Richard Jones sentenced Ridgeway to those 48 life sentences, right? And to also the 10 years for tampering with evidence for each of the 48 victims, getting that 480 years added to his 48 life sentences. And then years later on, on his 62nd birthday, February 18th, 2011 pleaded guilty to one more murder that 49th in an interview, he'd claimed more than 70 murders. Others think he killed closer to hundred women, December of 2011, Three teens, uh, how they found that last victim. They stumbled upon the remains of Becky Marrero on a ravine in the 6300 block of 296th Street, just west of West Valley Highway North. The 20 year old had gone missing on December 3rd, 1982. And to date, she's the last victim Gary's been found guilty of killing. Him. And all those years, her family had to wait to find a little closure. Uh, and Gary is currently incarcerated at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. And that takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So that's it. That's Gary Ridgway, man, the Green River Killer. Guy who doesn't have the same fascination around his murders as, say, uh, John Wayne Gacy or Dahmer, even though he killed more people and for a longer amount of time. Why isn't there the same level of fascination? Well, because, you know, uh, when you see the dude in interviews, he comes across more pathetic than terrifying. Reminds me of Ed Gein that way. When you watch him, you're just like, oh, this is not some criminal mastermind. This is just a sick, pathetic fuck uh, who's able to keep his horrific secret life secret. I came across the phrase uh, banality of evil in a description uh, you know, under an interview with him, and it was so perfect, man. He is banal. Uh, Gary's IQ, I hope I'm saying that right. Maybe banal. It's definitely not banal. I learned that last night. Uh, people were fucked with me at the live show, trying to convince me that it was banal. It's not banal. Banal, I believe. Banal. Uh, (laughs) Gary's IQ is consistently listed in articles and books as being somewhere around 85, 87. If you look at that old Lewis Terman IQ scale, score 80 to 85 classifies someone as dull. Uh, 90 to 109, normal or average. 110 to 119, superior. 120 to 140, very superior. 140 plus, genius or near genius. Just below Gary, 70 to 79, is borderline deficiency below. Uh, 70 was classified in 1916 when that study came out as feeble-mindedness. Ted Bundy, by contrast, has an IQ listed anywhere from 110 to 136 online, superior to very superior. So, yeah, so Gary Ridgway was and is dull, just kind of an angry, not the smartest man. And uh, maybe that's what helped him get away with it for so long. He was, you know, he was like a murderous robot. He didn't pull a BTK, send letters into the police to taunt them. He wasn't like Bundy, drunk on murderous power, going through a sorority and attacking multiple girls in the same night, thinking he just couldn't be caught. You know, he didn't think he could outsmart the world like John Wayne Gacy, you know, just putting bodies in his crawl space and inviting the police to come over to his home and smell them. You know, he preyed on the easiest members of society to prey on. That's also why he got away with what he did. You know, he targeted the weakest members of society, young women who made careers out of getting into cars with creepy men whose names they didn't even know. You know, dudes they hadn't even met before, men who they'd let drive them to secluded areas, men who'd be virtually criminally untraceable if they disappeared. And not only did he prey on prostitutes, he specifically tried to uh, target the weakest of the prostitutes, the youngest, the ones with the least street knowledge, the easiest, most trusting victims, paid him for sex, had it, and then choked him out and took his money back. Uh, he initially strangled them manually, but after being inflicted with many wounds and bruises from some of the early victims trying to defend themselves, he began using ropes, belts, ligatures to make his uh, murders easier. Killed the majority of his victims in either his truck or his home. Dumped the bodies in the thick woods surrounding the Green River. And then he'd do it again. And he'd revisit his dump site to revel in the murder's glory. And have sex with the victims' bodies again and again. Couple last Gary Gary, uh, details before we recap. Why did Gary choke his victims? Well, according to him, it was more personal and more rewarding than shooting them. Uh, God, man. Uh, 1984, Ridgway took a camping trip to Oregon. South of his home in Washington with his son. And he also happened to have the remains of two or three dead prostitutes in the car with him and his son. Paid for everything in cash to have no record of the trip. Dumped the remains uh, in the Oregon area so as to make detectives think that the Green River killer was moving south. And then presumably had a nice time camp with his son. So he was clearly capable of some serious mental compartmentalization. Why did he kill specifically prostitutes? Well, he said, I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. And also because he hated prostitutes. And why did he hate them? But he would later say, I picked prostitutes as my victims because I hate most prostitutes and I do not want to pay them for sex, excuse me. And I did not want to pay them for sex. This is where the low IQ comes in, right? Like, dude, paying for sex is what makes them fucking prostitutes, you idiot. Of course, they're not going to fuck you for free. If they did, they would not be prostitutes. They'd be like sex angels or something. What a weird mentality though. You know, I'm sick of carpenters. I don't like carpenters. Why? Because I want to, I want them to fix some shit on my house, but I don't have to pay them to do it. Uh, not a bright man. Uh, he really wasn't. For example, after 6 months of questioning, Dave Reichert, that head detective in the Green River Killer case, the one who would become a congressman, asked Ridgway after he hit, if he had any questions. And again, this is after 6 months of interrogation. He's like, "What do you, do you have any questions for us?" And apparently Ridgway responded, "Yeah, how come your hair is gray and your eyebrows are dark?" Really? That's 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 what we've been holding on to for the last couple of months, just waiting to ask your interrogator. Yep. Uh, he was also uh, uh, super proud of his killings in, in a way some high school has been. Would be proud of all the touchdowns they scored back in the day. You know, like uh, during an intensive period of questioning with the police, Ridgeway made it clear he wanted credit for all the murders he committed, but very explicitly stated more than once that he did not want to take credit away from other murderers. When asked why, he replied, why? If it isn't mine, because I have pride. I have pride in what I do. I don't want to take it from anybody else. It's just fucking weird, weird dude. And I'm sure uh, you know, You know, as we touched on kind of briefly, he was also a necrophiliac. Uh, over time, Ridgway lost his ability to be aroused by a living person, so he would kill his victims and then have sex with them. Now it goes back to that fantasy he's had ever since he was a teen after overhearing his dad talk about uh, the dad's friend at the mortuary. And uh, initially, he'd have sex with the corpses while they were still warm. And then, uh, then he began, you know, he when he began to bury his victims, he buried them close enough to home that he could return, dig them up, and have sex with them again. And then as time went on, he he did not mind that his conquest began to become a little rotten. By his own admission, he would wipe away maggots before having sex with some of the bodies. Fucking A. Okay, not going to get more disturbing than that. Let's cut to some top five takeaways, and then we'll get to some good news. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Gary Ridgway is the most prolific serial killer in American history. Convicted of 49 murders, three less than Ukrainian Nightmare, the Butcher of Rostov, Andre Chikatilo. Well, this is a big deal. He's not he's evil. He's a little bit evil. Not that evil as Chikatilo. Americans Americans have no communist work, I think. Number two, Gary began killing prostitutes in western Washington, dumping their bodies along the Green River, at least as early as the beginning of 1982. He didn't get caught until the end of 2001. For 20 years, he killed, dumped, and walked free, leading what seemed to be a normal, working-class suburban life. Life can be so unfair sometimes. Number three, Ridgway preferred to murder prostitutes because he knew they made it the easiest for him to not get caught. He knew who the weak were, and he knew how to prey on them, gaining their trust by doing stuff like showing them pictures of his young son. Number four, despite his prostitute addiction, the Green River Killer had arguably the cleanest wean west of the Cascades. Very clean wean, bar none. Mama scrubbed that shit down. Number five, new info. Early on in the formation of the Green River Killer Task Force, Gary Ridgway was not the prime suspect. Uh, Police initially believed that Melvin Foster was their man, and that actually slowed the investigation down. And uh, Melvin Foster, I showed a picture of him at the live show last night to illustrate why he became the prime suspect, and mostly because he looked like a fucking serial killer. He he looked so creepy. I get why the police made him the prime suspect. In mid-September 82, this man, Melvin Wayne Foster, called King County Police, poor guy. He's trying to help the investigation. He was a 43-year-old taxi driver. But he'd also been married five times, done a nine-year stretch in prison for auto theft. He'd grown up in South King County, and he just was so – he is so – he has a creepy affect. He has a creepy presence, and he just looks like a creep. Uh, I watched an interview where he was asked why he went to the police with what he thought was information, and this is what he opens with. When they ask him that question, like, you know, why did you go to the police? He says, you can be your brother's creeper. No, sorry. I I put creep in there because he's such a creep. I mentally added the word creep. You can be your brother's keeper or just another bearer of the mark of Cain. Totally dead in the eyes as he says that. That is some weird shit to say, talking about the mark of Cain. Don't do that when people bring you in for a serial killer investigation. Don't fucking mention the mark of Cain, right? You come across like some kind of wild-eyed, you know, pastor, some sweaty Pentecostal backwoods pastor, or you come across, you know, uh, it's like a serial killer, you know, tying someone to a chair and saying that shit to them. And that takes us out of today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Gary Ridgway, that dumb, murderous piece of shit, has been sucked. Don't let his low IQ allow you to feel sorry for him. That IQ may have prevented him from entering Mensa or getting his doctorate and, well, uh, anything. But it did not give him a reason to kill. Did not justify in any way the atrocities committed at his hands. And now for good news. Now for a special charity announcement. I promise the Space Lizards... Those Patreon premium members of the of the TimeSuck community that once we hit the initial $10,000 monthly goal that covers studio, employee, and app costs, that we'd start giving 20% of additional funds each month to a charity. And while we only beat the goal of $10,000 by a few bucks, you know, actually, it was if, well, after the fees, it was a few bucks. But we beat it by a few hundred dollars. $60 didn't seem like enough. So, uh, you know, I had a good month as far as touring and merch sales go. You guys have been supporting me. So I want to show some support to the Seattle-based Organization for Prostitution Survivors. We're making a $500 donation. Hopefully, this is the first of many, many donations increasing in size that TimeSuck is able to make. The OPS, uh, you can find them via their website, seattleops.org. I'll put that in the episode description. Co-founder and survivor of 15 years of prostitution, Noel Gomez, recognized an acute lack of services for adult survivors of prostitution while working at Youth Care's Bridge Program and facilitating the sex industry workers class for the city of Seattle, this acute lack of services inspired Noel to create OPS. So she collaborated with Peter Qualitine, other survivors and allies in Seattle's, uh, to establish OPS in the spring of 2012. Now this nonprofit works with prostitutes and former prostitutes in the Seattle area. It, it identifies their needs and provides a vision for the rest of their lives. they're fucking super cool, man. They they, they include one-on-one advocacy, case management, support groups, employment services, chemical dependency, recovery support, housing resources, so much more. They even provide services for those who pay to use prostitutes. I think that's awesome, man. They have essentially a weekly group therapy session and workshop to teach men about the dangers of prostitution and how to form healthy relationships, mutually beneficial relationships with women, and not just use prostitutes. And, uh, and they do all kinds of other cool, non-judgmental shit, a lot of progressive stuff. And everyone who listens to this show, all of you have now supported them. So thank you, your, your listenership, your spreading the sunk, your patronage. Now we're able to, uh, donate in a real way to, to worthy causes and, uh, very excited to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be able to do that. All right. So, um, so Gary Ridgeway, you know, he's in Walla Walla now. Uh, I do have a quick update on him before we get out of him. And this is the last thing I'll say about him ran into a time sucker, at the show in Spokane last night who said that, uh, their brother had a friend who was incarcerated with Gary in Walla Walla state penitentiary or federal penitentiary, whatever. And this dude, I guess, paid on Gary. Uh, oh, <laughs> sounds like fairly recently. I asked if it was in the shower and he said, no, He said this, uh, this dude, apparently just straight up pissed on Gary, Gary Like he just walked up to him, took his dick out and pissed on him. And uh, I don't have any more info than that, but <laughs> it was worth sharing on. Because after that story, I'm like, ah, oh, that's good to hear. I'm glad he's in prison and I'm glad he's getting pissed on. Uh, don't forget to grab my new album, Maybe on the Problem. Uh, kind of a weird segue to that from getting pissed on. Uh, on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, if you're a stand-up fan. It's, it's, it's all the usual dust. Uh, digital suspects. Uh, proud of it. It's been selling well. Feedback's been great from you guys, so thank you for that. Thanks to Harmony Velocamp, Jesse Dobner, Lindsay Cummins, Josh Krell, entire Time Suck team for their for their help. And uh, huge thanks to the Lily Twins, Sarah and Rebecca Reba. Those Bojangles Research Department assistants for doing another great job. Uh, current, consistently doing a great job gathering extra details for you time suckers. This Friday, more murder. Yeah, apparently it's murder week. This week on the Suck. It's a bonus week. Uh, it was the uh, will of the Space Lizards to have Gary suck today. And it was, uh, well, Nimrod's will. Hail Nimrod. To suck the Ripper. Jack the Ripper uh, this Friday. Who was Jack the Ripper? Well, we're going to try and find out. From August 7th to September 10th, 1888, someone dubbed Jack the Ripper terrorized the Whitechapel district in London's East End, killing at least five prostitutes and mutilating their bodies in an unusual manner, indicating that the killer had a knowledge or a strong knowledge of human anatomy. Jack the Ripper was never captured. And I'm guessing he never will be considering he would now be 131 years old. And that's if he killed people when he was a one year old, which is highly unlikely. So we're heading to Jolly Old England this Friday for some late 19th century history and to talk about unsolved murders. Should be fun. Uh, should be entertaining. Now let's find out what you suckers have been drawn to this past week and get into this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. A lot of scary updates have been coming in regarding our recent two-part exorcism of Annalise Michelle. Can't believe we're already doing another bonus suck this Friday. A lot of weird shit's been going on while people have been listening to the suck, specifically part two. Uh, Like what happened to our very own suck employee, Harmony Velikamp. She texted me saying, so super scary. I'm finally finishing the second part of the Annalise Michelle episode. Wanted to listen during the day in daylight. I ran a bath because the kids are napping and I made myself some hot tea, a real mom vacay. I set the teacup on the soap shelf in the wall of the shower and got in the bath. Press play. I was at the part where you started to read the prayers for the first part of the exorcism when all of a sudden the teacup of boiling water falls on me and drenched me in boiling water. My chest is burnt and my headphones broke. Officially spooked and I'm not even a believer in most of that stuff. Now it's at the part where you're about to play the voice clips of her and I paused it. I need to wait till I'm downstairs in daylight. LOL. Damn. And that is one of many crazy things that have happened recently. Uh, Also, as far as I know, Harmony is alive and well and not further burned today. But check this out. This is from uh, Time Sucker, Lauren Hendricks, who says, No, you don't even get an intro because it's not funny anymore. Fucking hell. Again. Hi, it's Lauren Hendricks again. And my phone shut off the recording again. It's never done that before today. And it's happened twice during this episode. You are reading about the actual saying... The priest would say for an exorcism, it was making my skin crawl the longer you went on with it and it sounded kind of echoey and all of a sudden my whole phone shut off, turned it back on and nothing's wrong. It has 45% battery left and the episode started back up exactly where it had left off. But this is, oh, maybe I'm sorry, 45% left of the episode, but this is the second creepy phone issue I've had during this episode. And I don't know who to blame you or Lucifina, but I'm scared. So fuck you. Sorry, Lauren. Well, you're not, you're not alone. This is probably not helping. A lot of other people got scared, which probably makes your experience even scarier. Uh, Dylan Irish uh, wrote in saying, dear sucker Supreme, I'd send this in a spooky story for the secret suck, but I already sent one in. I just wanted to let you know something that just happened to me literally minutes before I, I was typing this. I work at an auto body shop. I am painting a hood on a big ass dump truck. I've done my paint layers and I'm just starting my first clear coat layer. As I'm doing all this, I'm listening to part two of the exorcism suck. As I start to spray clear coat on the hood, the part with the audio files is playing, and I shit you not, two sections of light start to flicker rapidly. They've been fine all day, but when these audio files started to play, they just went bananas. I think it's weird, but I keep going. Seconds later, I look at an area where I'd already cleared, and the clear coat is running down the side of the hood faster than I've ever seen. It looked like I had just sprayed clear semen on it and just ran down quickly. I've been painting for four years and this has never happened. I wasn't doing anything different than usual and the air pressure on my gun was where it should be. This happened all over the left side of the hood. By the time I started to clear the right side, the audio clips were over with and I didn't have a single run of clear on that side and the lights are currently on and are not flickering. Maybe it's coincidence, but I thought you'd like to hear about this creepy ass series of events that just happened forever a space lizard beard papa. Man, Dylan, Dude, that is creepy. That is creepy. And so many of these things have been coming in. So many of these things. Uh, another one from Michael Wojcio. Which which, uh, uh, sorry, one of those names that's really troublesome. W-O-J-C-I-O. And again, so many of these were sending. I, I, it's too much to put all of them in here. But these are just a, a smattering. Uh, Michael says, hey, Suckmaster General, I haven't written in since you read my Pussygate email on your show. Oh, Yeah. That was a big thing. Love the show, but right now I am so fucking scared. I need to get right to the point. It's 8.50 p.m. Eastern time as I'm writing this. About 10 minutes ago, I was showering while listening to the latest episode, which I will never listen to again if I even finish it. And let me tell you what the fuck just happened. The first recording of The Exorcism made my skin crawl. When you played the second clip, it's always at like the same point, too. Mind you, in the shower, three or four seconds in, the light bulb in my windowless bathroom went out, leaving me alone. Wet, naked, and covered in goops bumps in pitch black in the house I live alone in. As soon as the light went out, my dog started barking like a psychopath outside the door. I'm a grown man, not afraid of much, and pretty level-headed, I like to think. I camp a lot in barren places and have never been creeped out like I am right now. Holy fucking shit on a sandwich, I am terrified. I just ran out of the bathroom to my room where the light was on, and now as I listen to you talk about how scared you are, I think I need a break. from today's episode, best episode ever. (laughs) I love that. We love to be scared. I might go to church on Sunday and I haven't been to a church since I was 12. Great job, man. Great job. Right. It's so creepy. So creepy. And then, uh, this is a funny one. I'm leaving this person's last name off in case they would be embarrassed. So Jeff, I I know you didn't ask me to, but I'm cutting your last name off. If you need to write it and say, no, I want it to be recognized, but I, I doubt you do. Jeff wrote in saying, I just finished listening to part two of the Annalise Michelle Demonic Possession Time Suck. I do deliveries overnight and listen to your podcast all the time. This one fucking scared the shit out of me, dot, 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 literally. <laughs> I was doing a U-turn on a dark real street, and just as you were playing the tapes of her speaking in that voice, a horse moved in the paddock near the road. I literally crapped myself a little. I <laughs> I now know what burnt shit smells like because that little nugget, in my butthole, uh, it left my butthole so fast it, it would put a shuttle re-entry to shame. <laughs> As always, Suck Master Cowboys, great episode. Keep up the good work from your faithful follower in the land, in, in the land down under, hail Nimrod. Uh, thanks man. Thanks to all my Aussie listed man. Uh, growing contingent of time suckers in Australia, which I'm very thankful for and in the UK and, and Sweden, uh, and Canada, all those are growing pretty fast, which is awesome. Okay, another one, Jenny Oman sends, hello there, dear Suckmaster. I'm writing you from the cold, dark depths of northern Sweden. Well, it's not actually that cold. It's about 37 degrees Fahrenheit today. I guess that's not too cold. It's kind of cold. I recently listened to the bonus episode 20 about the demonic possession of Annalise Michelle. You mentioned the demons who don't possess you uh, just put spooky, evil thoughts into a person's mind, and it made me think of something I read not too long ago. Apparently, there's a type of OCD that instead of making you feel the need to turn the lights off and on, a bunch of times it gives you intrusive thoughts. I read about a guy who has it and he says that he often thinks about hurting other people, children, his friends, mo- his friends, mothers. It's so specific, etc. cetera. He can't stop the thoughts from coming in. And eventually, uh, when one thought has been in his mind long enough, he starts worrying that he's actually done the bad thing that he's thought of. uh, and then forgotten about it. it. seems like a pretty shitty thing to live with thinking something like I could totally just stab this person and knowing you don't want to, that it's bad and not be able to get the thought out of your head and then becoming paranoid that you've actually done it. Anyway, just thought it might be an interesting thing if you didn't know about it already. Love the show. I love listening to it while I'm welding at work. Oh, that's fucking cool. I love, I don't, I, why do I think welding's so cool? I, I do think it's so cool though. And sometimes also actually setting myself on fire. Shit happens, you know? Yeah, Jenny, uh, I think maybe that could explain, you know, some people's, uh, some people thinking that they are possessed. Maybe it is some kind of a obsessive thought type syndrome. Type of OCD that sounds terrible, and I feel like I I feel like I may have a touch of that. I think crazy things all the time that I don't want to think. Uh, okay, another one from Alana Lynch. A possible explanation, just to you know go further with this OCD thing. Hear this, you crazy with the capital F, supreme master sucker. I have an update on the Annalise Michelle. Suck. While I'm not a psychologist myself, I have a bit of experience with intrusive bad thoughts that we were just talking about with Jenny. No, I wasn't possessed, but I was diagnosed with OCD at an early age, and wanted to see if I could shed a little light on what the hell is going on when a person experiences unwanted, disturbing thoughts. OCD is not the disease of obsessive hand-washing and cleaning, as many people believe. What it really is is an overwhelming amount of troubling thoughts that the sufferer obsesses over. In fact, while many people think of OCD as a disorder of rituals, hand-washing, cleaning, hoarding, etc., the rituals are more a symptom of the real problem, invasive, disturbing thoughts. For example, when someone hoards, they do so because their brain is telling them that all sorts of, Telling them all sorts of scary wackadoodle stories about how they might die or go insane if they throw something away. A common form of OCD that is not really heard of in the public sphere is pure OCD, where the sufferer doesn't actually perform any rituals, but is simply caught in a terrifying loop of stories their mind is telling them. These thoughts can range from disturbing sexual acts, harming oneself or a loved one, or even religious-based thoughts about hell. Many OCD sufferers are terrified that they will hurt the ones they love, even though in reality it's the last thing they want to do. For example, you might have a thought about bludgeoning a smoothie guy to death for being a dick and then turned it into a funny joke and laughed it off. While the OCD sufferer will start to wonder if they're genuinely a monster, if murder is something they fantasize about. I'm in the middle, actually. I may kind of think I'm a monster. This will snowball into obsessive thinking about every encounter with another human being, asking themselves if they feel violent towards them, perhaps even forcing themselves to imagine being violent to make sure they feel the right amount of disgust and horror. It's an exhausting cycle and if untreated, crippling. Like I said, not a psychologist. But if I were to encounter Annalise today, I'd recommend she get tested for OCD and schizophrenia. Those two disorders love to tag team OCD often mistaken for psychosis. It's a disorder that can make you do some pretty weird and disgusting things like being compelled to eat or drink certain things like feces and urine in extreme cases, talk in a specific way with specific words and act in ways that seem insane to an outside observer. Belief is a powerful thing, particularly in the mind of some with OCD. It has the power to alter our perception of reality and it's catching. If Annalise was acting in such a strange way with compulsion, she could not explain. It It makes sense that her family would believe her when she said she was possessed. Their belief in turn would firm up her own belief in possession. I am an educated, fairly intelligent woman, and I remember a night where it took me three hours in the middle of the night to climb the stairs to my bedroom because I was convinced that if I didn't do it the right way, I would go insane. Oh, that sounds terrible. Obviously, this is less intense than what Annalise did, but I bring it up as an example that mental illness can make a person do things they would never normally do and can't really explain. And if my parents had been standing next to me, agreeing with me that if I didn't climb the stairs correctly, I would lose my mind, I don't know if I would have ever made it to the top. My saving grace was my family there to remind me who I was, to point out what OCD that was, that it was making me do irrational things. If instead they had become convinced that a demon was possessing me and told me that I cannot even imagine how much my mental state would have deteriorated. I'm bringing this up partly because I think it adds to an already fascinating discussion and also because I think it's important for people to know that disturbing intrusive thoughts are completely entirely normal. Sometimes your brain comes up with shit that is completely out of character for you because brains are weird. We cannot control our thoughts and the contents of our thoughts do not define us. What matters is our responses to them and how we decide to act. Thoughts are not inherently powerful. We give them power when the way we react to them. Knowing this, I've been able to move past the ridiculous stories my brain sometimes tries to tell me. It is possible to be a victim of your own thoughts, but you don't have to be. You decide what you give the privilege of your attention to and how to speak and act. You are the one with power. Realizing this was essential for me to overcome my OCD and depression and I'm hoping it can help someone else too even in a small way. Finally, let me thank Nimrod for Time Suck and the Cult of the Curious. So refreshing to have a community that isn't afraid to ask difficult questions and agree to disagree on the answers. Fuck yes. You have created something rare and powerful with this podcast community and I can't thank you enough and even better, you do this in a way that has me laughing out loud every time. Hail Nimrod. Be gone, Lucifina. Keep on sucking Supreme Chancellor of Suck, Alana. Well, thank you and thank all of you for those time sucker updates. And man, I'm I'm loving this community too. And, and, and in a way, I don't even feel like I'm running it. I really don't. I feel like I'm along for the ride and I like it, man. It's just a it's it's got a life of its own. And I and I love it, love it, love it. All right. Thanks for those updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, have a great rest of your week. Friday. I hope you enjoyed the bonus suck with uh Jack the Ripper. In the meantime, uh don't kill anybody. Don't kill anybody uh especially don't kill any anybody that's already disenfranchised and uh you know most importantly keep those dark thoughts out of out of your mind by keeping on with your second <laughs> dot com slash timesuck.